and told you I was a good dancer. And welcome to When We Were Young, the podcast where we feel either incredibly vindicated or extremely embarrassed about the movies, TV, music, and pop culture icons we loved as kids. I'm Becky, and I'm the podcast host, most likely to not have to research any background information on Jonathan Taylor Thomas, since I still have it all memorized from when I was 13 years old. <laughs> I'm Seth Pearson, the host most likely to wish for the most horrifying flying dragon in the history of Fantasia. <laughs> I wonder what movie that's from. <laughs> uh, the Client. <laughs> and I'm Chris, the podcast host, who is daring to be different with two mad fat pinups. <laughs> that would be Seth and I. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is our Valentine's Day episode. Happy Valentine's Day. Didn't that just get you in the mood, everyone? <laughs> Got a little hot under the collar. Um, instead of tackling some like romantic comedy, we decided to focus this episode on the Hollywood heartthrob crushes that consumed us as young adults. Uh, there are so many to choose from, but we're going to be focusing on just a few guys that were really big deals for our little hearts in the 1990s, and that's Jonathan Brandis, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, Devin Sawak, Andrew Keegan, Brad Renfro, and Ryder Strong. There's so many that we could have chosen, though. Like, there's liter- We literally have like a giant list here. Yes. Cast of thousands. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's, should, should we go over a few of these um, extras? Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think the reason that we chose these ones are that they were the age, they were roughly the age that we were at the time, or at least they were contemporary. So, like, before this, there was, like, the cast of 90210, um, the new, cl- new Kids on the Block, like, but those were too old for us. I mean, before that, even there was like yeah, there was yeah, more. John Travolta, Tom Cruise. But I mean, we yeah. were aware of like Joey Lawrence or something. But I don't think that any of us were like quite old enough to like really like soak up. Yeah, <laughs> Joey Lawrence. My sister is four years older than me, and like she was into Joey Lawrence. Okay, yeah. Well, and see, I remember other people being into Joey Lawrence and New Kids on the Block, but like I didn't personally enjoy it quote unquote on the same level because i think there's an aspect of this where you have to be a teen like it is very much teens are the target market for teen heartthrobs that's true yeah mm-hmm. so some of the other ones that we certainly could talk a lot about if we had five hours <laughs> um we've uh jonathan jackson who is on in camp nowhere and boy meets world and there's Joshua Jackson, who was in The Mighty Ducks and Dawson's Creek. The whole cast of Dawson's Creek was also, <laughs> like, heartthrobby. And also all of the other Jacksons, Jermaine, Tito. <laughs> <laughs> Michael I mean, Jackson. He, he, was a, he was a teen heartthrob. Exactly. No, yeah, absolutely. he totally was. <laughs> and by, like, teen heartthrob, I think, like, 12 to, like, 18. Yeah. Is, like, so that young, like... Jonathan Jackson in Camp Nowhere is pretty young. Really so we young, don't mean yeah. that he's like sexy, but still like little girls had crushes on mm-hmm. him. He was it's basically anyone who was on the cover of Bot magazine or Teen Beat. Sixteen. Yeah, any of those. And um yeah, and I, I feel like actually like these these ones were pretty much they were kids when we were watching them for the most part as well. And so were we. Something about teen culture in the late nineties, it seemed like they were like, teens were a few years older when they were playing teens. Like, Dawson's Creek, those kids were, like, in their early 20s when they were on that. And 
Well, but that was true with like 90210 as well. Like, right. and, and I mean, even Brady Bunch, you know, like going back that far, like older people always did play that, but. It was true, but these teen idols that we're talking about now were actually like more closer to our age. Like they weren't people who were several years older than us, or at least I don't, I don't think that we perceived them that way. Like it felt kind of like they could be in class with us, but also being mobbed by <laughs> paparazzi mm-hmm. and. Uh, autograph seekers. Some other ones that were like really big deals when we were young. Joseph Gordon-Levitt when he had the long hair on Third Rock from the Sun. Elijah Wood. uh, River Phoenix. Leonardo DiCaprio. Who? Not familiar. (laughs) Jared Leto. Ryan Phillippe. Edward Furlong. And Terminator, right? Terminator Mm -hmm. 2? That was out of Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp. Usher. Will Smith. Mark Paul Gosselaar. And all of the, um, yeah, all the Saved, Saved by, by the, the Bell, Bell people. Maybe not Dustin Diamond, but no. Mario Lopez. Let's just call it that. <laughs> uh, Mr. Belding. <laughs> <laughs> He's on the hottie or naughty list. <laughs> Freddie Prince Jr. Um, and then like a, a little bit older, I think, than us was like people in 90210, Party of Five, Dawson's Creek. And then like late 90s, it was like the boy bands of like Hanson, NSYNC, 98 Degrees, Backstreet Boys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so boy bands are, like, their own topic, I think, like, that we could dive into at some point, and perhaps we will. Um, But, so, yeah, we're not focusing on boy bands. These are more of the thespians, teen, young teen thespians. I have some background information about the history of teen magazines that I can share. I throw facts. (laughs) So it kind of really got its start in the 1950s with Elvis Presley's introduction. Magazines like 16 would publish articles warning what it would be like to date Elvis. The full-blown teen fandom movement started in earnest, though, with the Beatles arriving stateside in 1964. One of the first teen magazines ever was a magazine called Coaster. It was a regional publication for Long Beach locals, launched by Beverly Hills High School English and Journalism teacher Charles Laufer. It took him a while to realize that boys weren't really into teen idols the same way that girls were, and the way that girls kind of just went, like, crazy for their crushes. So he refocused the magazine, renamed it Teen. Then he left the publication in 1965 to create Tiger Beat. That still exists today. Mm. That was just when the monkeys started getting popular. So it was a lot, uh, in the beginning, it was a lot of music acts that really uh, launched Teen Idols. In the 1990s, magazines like Sassy and Teen People popped up. Personally, I remember reading Bop a lot. (laughs) God, I didn't even remember that at all, except for I saw a lot of Bop magazine covers while doing research for this episode. (laughs) Oh, I read Bop a lot. I think that might have been my favorite. For some reason, they all were all the same, except they had, like, tiny little different personalities, maybe. No, they didn't. Maybe, like, the format of, like... They use different Comic Sans fonts for their... <laughs> Maybe I just like bopped the most. Oh, man. Um, so- that really makes sense. That really tracks to Becky. <laughs> that, again, like, every time Becky says something, we as co-hosts are still shocked how much we learn about her, even as long as we've known her. Becky was, like, in theaters watching Shine and reading Bop. Like, what is going on with you? <laughs> Who were you? She had a double feature of Shine and Bop. <laughs> I'm, I'm everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and everything. Um, so internet and social media kind of killed the teen idol magazine. Fans could have direct access to their celebrity crush or easily look up info about them on Wikipedia or IMDb or just, you know, fan pages. They didn't have to buy magazines. So sales took a huge slump across the board. In 2016, Tiger Beat was sold to a group of investors for $4 million in hopes to relaunch the brand on digital. 
it does exist on digital, tigerbeat.com. And I went there because I was just curious. And it does just look like a modern website. Like there's nothing kind of retro or nostalgic about it, which I feel like they're kind of missing out on that at this point. Yeah. I also stumbled upon <laughs> Teen Beat for the ti- Teen Beat, Tiger Beat? Uh, Tiger Beat. Tiger Beat. Oh, I think I've stumbled on Teen Beat, maybe. Okay. It's all the same. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Because I was looking for like archived interviews, but. Instead, I kept coming up with new stuff. And so it was like interesting to see the new version of that with a bunch of boys I've never heard of. Oh, I was going to say, I did not recognize one name on that entire... I kept scrolling down. (laughs) I didn't recognize one name. I felt really old. (laughs) I think that's a good thing, though. Like, I guess. Like, I mean, I know who Justin Bieber is. I know who One Direction is, but they didn't even have those people. No, those are like too old. Those are super old now. Oh, it's so weird. These kind of teen heartthrobs, the image of them has replicated across many generations. But I also wanted to hit on the kind of origin of the teenager to begin with, because it's so inseparable from the idea of a teen heartthrob. Yeah, because originally children just went to adults instantly and people weren't teenagers. Right. The whole idea of a teenager is a manufactured thing. It's a it's a product of America's culture. So who were your biggest celebrity crushes when you were growing up, like around age 12 and 13? Well, the boys that I liked, I have compiled a following list. Um, <laughs> Don't joke about that. I have that in my journal here. <laughs> oh, I know you do. I, I was not nearly as fastidious in keeping journals or lists or anything as either of you are. I loved Ryder Strong. I loved uh, I loved the idea of Andrew Keegan, but I never saw him in anything. I would only encounter these teen heartthrobs in the context of watching their shows or not. So, like, I watched Sequest, so I saw Jonathan Brandis. I saw The NeverEnding Story in theaters, so I saw Jonathan Brandis. Did you know that you were gay then? Interestingly enough, Never Ending Story was a part of my coming to realize that I was gay. Which is also a never ending story. <laughs> it is. It, it unfolds more and more each day. And it is consumed by the nothing quite often. <laughs> I'm glad you made the nothing joke because I was about to. And then I was like, oh, is it too mean? Nope. <laughs> it is only accurate. The first male of any kind that I recognized I had feelings for was the character Atreyu in the first NeverEnding Story movie. Oh, that's a good one. (laughs) It's a good one. It was a good early crush. I think there are many boys and girls who agree with you on that one. (laughs) Oh, I think Atreyu was a pivot point for many a young gay. (laughs) He had like an Andrew Keegan vibe going on with the hair. Well, and see, that was another kind of aspect of all of these characters that they played, but also like the teen heartthrobs. And I think part of their appeal is that they all have very feminine or androgynous facial features. They are softer looking. They are not like chiseled. They're not overtly masculine. They but are they're not, also it, like 12. So how could they be like chiseled? But even like 16 or 17. Yeah. They might not have like facial hair, but like you can see a 16 or 17 year old who's maybe on the football team and is like, burly. Yeah. And that's well, not what generally these guys were. True. I think that's part of the reason why these teen heartthrobs, when they grow, when they literally grow up, age out of it. Mm-hmm. Because they develop into fully adult human beings whose facial features are less soft and undefined by age. Um, and and what's cute to a 14-year-old girl is not necessarily attractive to a 30-year-old woman 
I'm going to put words in Becky's mouth. We'll see. I don't know. <laughs> well, but I also wanted to hit on the idea that these particular celebrities, I think part of the reason they became famous is not just because they're so appealing to kids, but they're so appealing slash inoffensive to their parents. Because there were not huge rallies to like burn Jonathan Taylor Thomas posters and stuff like that like there wasn't the rebellion against these kinds of teen stars that there was against say a Marilyn Manson or even to some extent toward Elvis when Elvis first yeah. came out there were the a lot Beatles, of a lot of and the Beatles absolutely the Beatles. there was a lot of backlash against even as inoffensive relatively speaking as they were there was a whole lot of cultural backlash built into the idea of them well they did want to hold your hand so <laughs> it's pretty risque <laughs> But how did you respond to that? Like, is that why you liked someone like Ryder Strong or Jonathan Brandis? Was there something inoffensive that you so, liked? There were particular subtypes of teen heartthrobs. Yeah. I think Ryder Strong and Jonathan Brandis both fit the kind of image of a teen who was like play acting at being rebellious and cool but you knew like ultimately they were just a good kid and I think I gravitated toward that because again their image had an aspect of rebelliousness to it ultimately that wasn't really there at all right because I think you kind of know that they're actually actors and to be an actor you actually have to be really professional and show up for your job every day I don't even think with any of these that I was like thinking the, of them in terms of their work as the real life people. I just mean in terms of the way that they struck me when I watched like Jonathan Brandis and Sequest. He seemed like he was like a whiz kid person, but he also like never really seemed like he was going to be malicious or like hurt someone, which like fits with what you're saying. But I just kind of was only perceiving it from that one angle at the time. Mm. Also, like, how did you express your fandom? Because I think one big aspect of of teen girl fandom for these boys is that they adorn their lockers and notebooks and maybe even keep an entire diary. <laughs> They're uh, talking about me. He's talking yeah, about me. About a certain teen heartthrob. But for you, like, were you at all open about it or was this a completely like private? Yeah, experience? I'll get more into it later, but I did not express my fandom. I kept it inside along with all of my other young person feelings. Healthy. Did you have any girl crushes? Oh, yeah. No, I definitely had girl crushes. My boy crushes started about the same time as my girl crushes. Who were your, like, female celebrity crushes? First and everlasting is Jillian Anderson. Um, it's mostly redheads. I think we've briefly touched on this in previous episodes of When We Were Young, but it was like mostly redheads on my S list. Jillian Anderson, uh, Shirley Manson from Garbage. Mm, that's a good uh, one. Those are like the only two that really stuck out to me. Chris, how about you? I will take you on a tour through my... <laughs> the earliest like celebrity crush that I can remember, which kind of doesn't even count because I don't know who it was. It was like some girl who played Alice in Wonderland and something that I saw and I was like, ooh. A TV movie or a Yeah, play? something like that. Something that was on TV. I really liked Catwoman, but Catwoman I think was a little too sexy. Like I think it was more of admiring the character and Michelle Pfeiffer's performance. That was a character that gave me confusing feelings too. For me, I think it was perceiving her power it like because she has like erotic power aside mm -hmm. from just having like power as a character and i think that really like piqued my interest even though i didn't have the context for what it was yeah it, kind of the same for me is i really liked the character and the power of the character and could recognize her as sexy but also like she was 
30 something during that. I mean, I wasn't like imagining Kissing <laughs> holding her. hands with Michelle Pfeiffer <laughs> as in the Catwoman costume and like skipping down the street. You're going to build a life with Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. And if we had done that, the police probably would have arrested her. So I wouldn't really call that a crush, but it was, she was there. She was in there somewhere. It's okay. You can crush on imaginary people. It happens all the time. <laughs> I mean, I, I frequently now think about myself running off with Michelle Pfeiffer, <laughs> but that's a whole different story. Ariana Richards from Jurassic Park. That was a big one. Who? She played Lex, the girl in Jurassic Park. Oh. Had a big thing for her. She was also in, like, one other movie called Angus that I was, like, oh, very I remember excited that. I remember by. that movie. Yeah, and I, like, saw it just because of her. Like, I was just excited about that. Then we went from Jurassic Park to Christine Taylor. Ah. Uh. <laughs> Of mostly the Brady Bunch movies, I think. But did it start with Brady Bunch, or did you watch Hey Dude? I did watch Hey Dude, and I think I liked hey her dude. on Hey Dude, but maybe I watched it, like, slightly before really, like, a crush would happen. So then, but I think her familiarity from Hey Dude was really a factor in why <laughs> I was able to gravitate toward her in the Brady Bunch movie and um, you The Crafts. Yeah, I mean, from <laughs> Alice on. Like, <laughs> and then the big one, Sarah Michelle Gellar. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely had a type, apparently. Strong, kick-ass blondes. Yeah, I don't know if I'd call Christine Taylor. Yeah, she was, she was strong yeah. in her own way. Confident. So now that we know what gentlemen prefer, <laughs> <laughs> Becky, who were your favorite teen heartthrobs? Oh, this and the is... only acceptable answer is... <laughs> Does any one come to mind, or is there... I had three. The first celebrity that I ever had groin feelings for... <laughs> <laughs> groin pains? Groin, groin, groin <laughs> pains. Groin pains. <laughs> it's hard to say. <laughs> Number one was Devin Sawa... Only because I saw Casper and then the last scene happened where Devin Sawa does not even voice Casper, but they cast him as like when Casper becomes like a real boy and they, he's literally in the movie for like three minutes or less. And he like asks Christina Ricci to dance and then they're like floating and dancing and he's like, can I keep you? And she's like, Casper. And I just the the reveal of his face was like. Ugh. <laughs> like, like 12 year old me was like oh my god like puberty like started at that moment <laughs> and I've ovulated <laughs> yeah. dropped a couple eggs that night <laughs> theater owners were like really upset with Casper because there was just blood stains everywhere <laughs> little girls laying face huggers all over that theater so that was number one and so that was when I was 12 and then it didn't last very long I'm gonna work backwards though <laughs> So the third guy was David Duchovny. Mm. Uh, that was more like a 14-year-old Becky to like 16-year-old Becky. I didn't really watch The X-Files, but for some reason, I really liked him and Gillian Anderson. And I really had like a thing for David Duchovny. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful yeah, like man. maybe I just had a thing for older guys or I don't know what it was about him. My art teacher kind of looked like him. So I think there might've been some weird feelings there. Um, but I had a, like I cried when he got married to Taya Leone. Like I was really upset that day. I so, was too. So I that's right how, there with you. that's how sad I like, wow. that's how big into David Duchovny I was. I was just happy for them. And <laughs> wished them a beautiful life. <laughs> nope. Nope. <laughs> Sent him the worst. <laughs> My very first internet screen name was Decovnight at AOL.com. I can and, confirm that. And mine was Scully and Spooky. <laughs> mine was Slay Me Please. <laughs> We're learning so much we about are each other. Very much ourselves. 
But the big one was JTT. <laughs> the smallest of all. <laughs> oh, man. I have stories that I think Chris knows, but Seth does not. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so, God. <laughs> Where do I start? So, I f- still have my journals that I've kept since, like, sixth grade. And about two of them, literally, the only entries in them are about Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Every <laughs> like These are, like, 200, 300-page journals. <laughs> They're really books. They're not... Ger- they're yeah. It's the war and peace of Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Yeah. yeah. Becky's the Tolstoy of 90s teen heart sensations. Here, I'll read this one. November 7th. I saw Jonathan on Home Improvement today, and his voice just changed a little. <laughs> November 8th. But I still love him. <laughs> I like how you had a monitor of his voice changing like every half an octave you could mark yeah. like on a on a wall i didn't i didn't mention that they're separating the entries is a heart with jonathan written in it and little hearts in the heart <laughs> <laughs> all right there's more i've been thinking of something lately that is true mrs cooney said it today she was talking about reflections contest and how we would get a hundred if we won best in state someone asked how we could win and she said if it has to be someone why not you I have been thinking that a lot. If Jonathan has to have someone as a pen pal or a girlfriend, why can't it be me? It can be me. Why can't it be there's, me? There's no reason why it can't be me. <laughs> These are the lyrics to Becky's I Want song in the Jonathan Taylor Thomas musical. It's also like bulletproof logic there. He yeah. might want me. He should want me. <laughs> he he shouldn't not want me. Therefore, we're married. <laughs> oh, I, there's there's no way to really... I, maybe we'll share these on social, or maybe I'll just go dig a hole and hide in it forever. <laughs> but there's pic- there's pictures of Becky Bain loves Jonathan Taylor Thomas forever and ever. I can visually confirm, and it's beautiful. BB plus JTT. <laughs> Sometimes I just wrote trivia about him. Oh, I have a... a, a, a a uh, list of the ar- posters, articles, and tidbits that I have on my wall. Oh, yeah, my wall was just pictures of Jonathan from these teen magazines. Like, anytime my mom would go to the store, I'd be like, pick me up a bop. <laughs> <laughs> go to the store for some pop and some bop. <laughs> mom, I need a bop. Go to the store now. <laughs> Baby wants her bop. Yes. Um, and I would li- my my wall my wall was literally wallpaper of Jonathan Taylor Thomas. It was a wall of ops. A wall of ops. <laughs> and I would write down what my favorites were, new ones. Um, so you really needed a hobby, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> you were writing down what was on your wall. So I did have a hobby, and that was that I didn't have... Jonathan Taylor Thomas. I didn't have a lot of friends back then, so I think I talked about this, that I would go on the internet every single day after school, and I had friends online in, like, chat rooms. And, like, they were, like, prodigy chat boards or Mm -hmm. whatever they're called. Mm -hmm. And, like, the one that I would always go to was Disney Fan Club. It was called the DFC. I went to the Twister one a lot. (laughs) So I would go there, and I had a lot of friends that I... Some of them I've met in person, um, and almost, almost all of them I've talked to on the phone for like hours. Like those were my friends. I talked to them for hours on the phone, other girls around the country. And I, let's just get to the end of this story. I s- basically probably got catfished by somebody pretending to be JTT for two years. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah. This is a new one Becky's just laid on me. <laughs> <laughs> I had it kept up for a while wow. because I wanted to get your reaction. Wow. Ever since we started doing this podcast, <laughs> I have known that this episode was coming and, you know, like threatened Becky is like, someday you're going to have to come out with it. Yeah. Oh, it's so embarrassing now. 
It's so embarrassing. I literally talked to this person for like two years, totally believing him. When I went to camp over the summers, he would write me letters. <laughs> like you, so you had his handwriting yeah. and everything. Yeah. Did you ever do a ha- find a handwriting sample of the real JTT? Oh, and I'm compare? sure I did, and I convinced myself it was real. And he would like be like chatting with me for hours. <laughs> and 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 my other friends online too like he would talk to other people in this like club so i'm i'm still like facebook friends with a lot of these girls and like whenever like it doesn't happen often but if there's like some gtt news we kind of like write in each other's walls and we're like and kind reconvene of, yeah like we're just like oh my god we were so young um and so they like i have this history at least with other people at the time that like we're talking to this person that i mean as an adult they're still like a 10% part of me that's like, maybe it was him. <laughs> like, <laughs> Wait, so, okay, so this was just within your message board chat circle thing. Like, I would personally IM with him. Oh, Like, okay. we would all IM each, like, I'd come and home was and was it expect- Was it known anywhere else? Like, was it a rumor elsewhere that this was his, like, official, so, like, Not in, like, the account? Not in the grand pop okay. culture of, you okay. know. Well, because that's a phenomenon that happens a ton now, which is that it's, like, super easy to catfish people because you can, like, pose as... A fan account or something. Well, these were, like, early days. So his, yeah. like, screen name was... Uh, mine was MHHXO3D. <laughs> and my and my, and my IM name was Looky Looky. Um, that's how that's how ingrained in my brain is I know my prodigy ID. What was his screen name? Uh, um, U-H-H-U-M-M. Because <laughs> he wouldn't say what his real name was, so he would just say, uh, um. um. He also was Mr. Blonde something. Uh, yeah. There was... I was, like, in love with this person. Totally oh, in love. Like, and I actually... Did you ever talk on the phone? No. Because it probably wasn't him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, we didn't. And, like, I was actually going to come to L.A. with my dad and my sister. And he's like, yeah, I'll meet up with you. And he like we, like, went to Planet Hollywood with another female friend of mine um, that me and Chris actually met, Heather, in, oh, in, yeah. in Portland. Um, she came down to Portland, and so we met in L.A. at Planet Hollywood, and there was a chance that he might show up, and he didn't, because he, again, was not him. Or maybe he did, and he just was not Jonathan Taylor Thomas. <laughs> yeah. Like, this... Mm. Part of me is, like, looking back on this, I am so embarrassed, <laughs> but also, like, nothing happened? This person was pretending to be this famous person, so he wasn't going to meet me and molest me. You know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't have met up with him. And in fact, I kind of wanted to, and it never, like, he wouldn't do it. So, I guess he was, like, partaking in some fantasy being someone else? Mm -hmm. Like, you know? It's like a mutual roleplay situation here. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of common. It's weird that, like, in the 90s, there was this, like, chat culture, but it was so un informed that you would just talk to strangers. I did that, too. Yeah, okay. And, I mean, now you, like, might tweet at a stranger or something, but it's, like, it's just not the same. Like, you used to, like, spend hours talking to yeah. strangers. Like, yeah, there's a couple other people that were strangers I talked to. Like, maybe they were friends with, maybe they were talking to one of my friends, and they'd be like, oh, talk to this guy. And then, you know, maybe I would. Like, it was just kind of, you felt, like, kind of free online. Like, yeah. you could, you could share your ASL. <laughs> sex location but like i did i was never like scared anyone was gonna do anything to me and maybe that was me being naive 
but it did feel freeing. I felt like I built a lot of my confidence up and I learned to be a really good typer. <laughs> um, Typist. I, yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> not good at talking about no, it. Okay. I can type it really Fair well. Enough. Fair enough. Um, yeah. I mean, there were moments where we definitely cybered, <laughs> but like, that's, that's okay. <laughs> um, but like nothing in real life happened with it. And then like, I remember like, it all kind of went away and also this infatuation with JTT in general when I went to high school and I like got a real life, <laughs> I guess. Mm-hmm. I had boys in my drama class that I thought were cute and then I had other friends and then it just kind of like went away and it went away gradually considering how infatuated I was with this person and that I thought I was talking to him in real life. Like it kind of just went away really quickly. Yeah, it makes you realize like how those feelings are kind of just ridiculous. Like they're not there's nothing really behind them except for hormones and stuff. Well, but the craziest part is like how re- the real they can feel in the moment. They do. Oh, for sure. And then like how oh, quickly yeah. they dissipate afterward. I mean, the 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 many pages of Becky's tomes, her Lord of the Rings series about JTT here confirms. Oh, can I ta- can I read an entry here? It's short. You can read every entry here. February 24th. <laughs> the WWW is so cool. I love it. <laughs> It has so much info on Jonathan. <laughs> I found a new service to deliver me JTT information. I can now mainline JTT. <laughs> I like kind of want to burn these books because I'm so embarrassed, but no, also we will never not ever let that happen. Never ever. Becky, <laughs> Becky, I've got gotten- It was Mr. Blonde One. That was his. I am Tim, and he was on. I'm wait. <laughs> January 6th. I'm 13. I went on Prodigy today at t- 12 p.m. to see if uh uh-uh was on, and I IM'd him, Mr. Blonde One, and he was on. First I said hi and wrote a smiley face. He wrote back, hi. <laughs> <laughs> you could have just printed out the conversation. Oh, I did. Oh, I think my mom found them. <laughs> like, I printed out a lot, including the unmentionable ones. Sabers. <laughs> Oh god, this I mean, is so I'd be embarrassing. I'm really curious to look at <laughs> no that one, right now. No but. one's better on cyber. <laughs> <laughs> one thing that occurred to me reading these horribly embarrassing journals is that I didn't have that many friends back then. I certainly wasn't going to talk to my mom or sister or dad about any of this. I didn't really have anyone to talk to, so I was talking to myself and about my feelings in these books. Yeah, it's, so, ve- it's very much the same for me. I did, And I didn't externalize those feelings and things about those kinds of topics to other people in my life. And I didn't write them out and starting until high school. Yeah, I mean, I, at 11, started writing, like, my first novel. And it was the same thing as, like, it was a novel, but I, like, was writing it for me, and I was the only one enjoying it, like... It was really just, like, my fantasy world that I created. So it's interesting that we all kind of disappeared into some kind of fantasy. So I have one more question about um, Mr. Blonde One. (laughs) (laughs) At what point did he reveal himself as JTT? I think somebody who was already... One of my friends online was already talking to him and knew... We were all, like, in the Disney fan club. Mm -hmm. So we all knew that, like... Like, I loved The Lion King, like, in general. Like, I still think it's the best thing Disney's ever done. And I think that also helped start my JTT obsession. Oh, that's right. I was into Devon Sawa, went to camp, and then everyone in my bunk was into JTT. And I remember taking down my Devon Sawa poster and putting up JTT. (laughs) And then you wrote a journal about (laughs) searching them out. (laughs) Do you have the record of the switchover? (laughs) The changing of the boys? (laughs) Um, So I think when I first talked to him... 
like somebody was like, I've been talking to him. Like I'll I'll give you his screen name. And so and you're like, he's mine. Yeah, I wrote in an entry, January 22nd. I don't think it's fair that Heather gets to talk to Jonathan most of the time. And I don't. She is taking all of my tell John ideas, <laughs> even though she doesn't know it. I was going to talk about astronomy, but Heather already <laughs> talked about it with him. Not fair. <laughs> Jonathan Taylor Thomas only has one astronomy conversation in him, and that is it. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm just sad that you didn't then sick your mom on her. <laughs> I'm not kidding when I say I think these should be published. <laughs> like, I'm, I fully, wholeheartedly endorse that idea. So embarrassed. And uh, so how much did he know about Jonathan? Like, did you talk a lot about things about him? Like, did he ever, like, share, like, what it was like on the set of Home Improvement or anything I, I like that? I honestly can't remember specifics of that nature. Like, parts of it, like, made sense to me <laughs> because he would be like... Like, in the dressing room for a while, he's like, yeah, I'm on set. And I'm like, well, that makes sense. Like, he's, mm-hmm. uh, like, I, at that point, I kind of did know, like, how Hollywood sets were for some reason. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, there's a lot of downtime. So it makes sense why he's California time and I'm New York time. And you know what I mean? Like, I just kind of, like, made sense in my brain. Like, you want it to be true. Yeah. I think that's the key is that you take that leap of faith because you want it to be true. Yeah. So when I went to USC, um, I remember my freshman year. And it had been years since I, like, thought about any of this. And, like, freshman year, somebody was at a a party on Greek Row. And they were like, oh, JTT's at this frat party. What? And I want... Part of me wanted to run over there <laughs> so I could be like, was that you? Like, can you please just, like, verify? Like, show me your journals. Be like, is this you? Like, is that you? But I also was like, I almost, like, don't want to know because I'm so embarrassed. Like, I don't know. Yeah, the worst thing is if it were not him. Yeah, it's all bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I, why didn't you run over to just seduce him on your own merits? Oh, I don't know. Because he's a famous person. He was in Speedway Junkie at that point. I I think you overestimate what fame is and also misinterpret how it's taken sexually. Yeah. So if you're out there, can you please contact me? Contact when we were young and please say, no, that was not me, but you sound like a cool girl. Or, yeah, it was me. So you're only speaking to JTT. What if Mr. Blonde One is listening? Oh, What do you have to say to him? Why? Why did you fill my heart with hope for two years? How old do you think this person was? Like looking back, like did well, they I seem? Don't no, like twenties. I don't know. Yeah, twenties. There was somebody that <laughs> like he was friends with online that I also talked to, and they said they were in their twenties and lived in New Jersey. Like maybe it was that guy, the guy oh. who wrote me letters, and li- they were, they were posted in New Jersey. Oh, I think we've solved the mystery. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the most. Yeah, that I makes the most sense. Occam's razor can apply to this one. Yeah. yeah. Well. I never got molested over the internet. <laughs> so You I mean, molested yourself over the internet. Yeah. I think that's an accomplishment for New Jersey. Yeah. So there's that whole story. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Oof. So it's all downhill on this podcast from there, because I think that was the highlight of the episode. But we <laughs> no, do actually have things to dive into. Yeah, now let's let's talk about Jonathan Taylor Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> the real one or <laughs> the real one. Okay. You ever been engaged, Becky? No. How do you do it? Well, you got to tell the person that you love them. Then what? Well, then you're supposed to kiss. Really? Sure. You first. I love you. There, now I got to say it to me. 
FYI, my host most likely to at the very beginning of the episode was not a lie. I didn't have to look up any of this. I looked it up after I wrote it to confirm that my memory was correct, and it was. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jonathan Taylor Weiss was born September 8th, 1981 in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. In Bethlehem, a star was born. <laughs> His first acting role was in 1990 as Kevin Brady, Greg Brady's son on The Brady's, a spinoff show of The Brady Bunch. Wow. In 1991, he was cast on Home Improvement, playing Randy Taylor, the middle child of Tim Allen's character, Tim Taylor. Uh, Dad's cussing. I'm not cussing. It's not a bad word. It wasn't bad. Yeah, you said hell and damn. I did not say damn. Now you did. During his time on the show, he starred in several films, many of them Disney films. Some of these movies include Man of the House with Chevy Chase, Tom and Huck with Brad Renfro, who we'll be talking about a little bit later, Pinocchio, um, which uh, stars Martin Landau and All of My Nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> Wild America with Devin Sawa, who, again, we will t- be talking about later. Um, I'll Be Home for Christmas. And he's probably best known um, outside of Home Improvement for being the voice of young Simba in The Lion King. Dad? Dad, come on. You gotta get up. Dad. We gotta go home. I had a really big thing for The Lion King, too, so I think I just considered it a sign. (laughs) Jonathan Taylor Thomas left Home Improvement in 1998 to focus on school. He graduated from Harvard and Columbia. So he's stupid. (laughs) What? He also starred in a few movies as an adult, including the Christian film Walking Across Egypt with Ellen Burstein and Mark Hamill, and a movie called Speedway Junkie with Jesse Bradford, where they both play gay hustlers. Uh, It's a really, really jolting experience to watch JTT in this movie because the very first thing he says when he's introduced is... Evening losers. Oh shit, it's only the president. Get fucked in the ass tonight, Eric? Yeah, by your dad. Mitch gave twice. <laughs> Ladies, you don't mind, do you? He takes like a hit off a crack pipe. It's like literally the first it's 30 a, seconds that's of That's a weed pipe. Oh, you saw the scene? Yeah, yeah. I watched a lot of Speedway Junkie specifically to see if there was any actual gay sex in it. Uh, Is there? No, not even remotely. Oh. I offered the thesis earlier that a part of these teen heartthrobs' appeal is their ultimate inoffensiveness, even when they pretend to be edgy. And I think Speedway Junkie and Jonathan Taylor Thomas's performance and character in that totally fit that to a T. Because there's not really even a moment of him kissing a guy or really of anyone else. There no like even hints of direct hints of sex scenes Um, there's no real queerness outside of just what they they say they're doing and even then there's nothing really in their character or the way that they're performing that suggests that he's done a few voiceover roles in the last few years but not much he had some roles on Veronica Mars, Smallville, Eight Simple Rules cameoed on Tim Allen's new sitcom Last Man Standing. In 2016, it was reported that he and his Home Improvement co-star Zachary Ty Bryan had written an R-rated pilot to star in and were shopping it around. Let's see if anything happens with that. As much as I think that I know about him, there's not much of his personal life that's known. Like, I couldn't find out what he's doing now. Like, maybe he's just living off residuals or still trying to be an actor, but I had a feeling he was a lawyer or something else, but, like, I couldn't find any information, and I just felt like that was really interesting. All that Wikipedia literally has under personal is that he's a vegetarian. 
like I thought that was really interesting because he came from a time before the internet was really like Instagram, Facebook, like you and know, before so, every detail before social of their lives yeah. was broadcast everywhere. Yeah, and so like I mean, good for him. He seems like drama free and didn't go to rehab for all we know. Like maybe he did, but it's not in the news. And yeah. he seems like a a normal person. Like. I don't know. That's why I'm kind of curious if he has like a normal person job or if he's well, still trying to... Well, say hello to Jim. <laughs> oh my God, I'd kill you. <laughs> A.K.A. Mr. Blonde One. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Mr. Blonde yeah. One. Um, yeah. I So we watched a couple of clips um, of JTT's... I can't call him Jonathan. He has to be JTT. He's JTT. No, that's just how he's branded forever. Yeah. Um, like we watched... T- Chris and I tried to watch all of Tom and Huck, which is a movie that I literally watched on repeat. I mean, all of these movies I watched on repeat, so I felt a little like a pedophile watching that movie. <laughs> like, God, I feel like this the feeling I got watching these movies would have been so much more aided if y'all had been with me at the time. <laughs> like, I, We wanted you to suffer alone. It's always clear that you want me to suffer alone, but especially in this context. It's just your place in life. It is. No, it I didn't is. know it's... you wanted to watch all of Tom and Huck. <laughs> so, because we tried to, and at some point I was like, I get it. Yeah. I get it. Becky graciously linked me to a trailer and a scene from each of the mm-hmm. different movies that these guys starred in. She watches and, them every day. Y- yeah, Used these to. are from her personal collection. <laughs> She gave me the internet addresses by heart. <laughs> um, but I also sought out, like, not just the romantic scene, but, like, a sad scene or, like, an action scene just to get more of a flavor for it. I could not take much of Tom and Huck. It's No, it's fine. So, as far as is he a good actor or not, like, I think that he's actually pretty serviceable in everything he's in. Like, he could do... He was really good as young Simba. Like, you know, he had to, like, cry and be feisty and I feel like that's kind of his thing like he can like go a little bit to comedy and be a little snarky and like throw one liners um, with people like Tim Allen or whoever Chevy Chase and can also do like sad scenes where he can like cry on cue but nothing he's ever been in has been that challenging of a role yeah I was gonna say I don't I don't think he's a particularly good actor I, I think basically none of these teen heartthrobs <laughs> are particularly good actors at all that we're gonna talk about today yeah. at least um, they're serviceable he's he's serviceable for sure. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I think he's a pretty good sitcom actor. Like, he got that down. Yes. And, like, was really good at, like, delivering those punchlines. But then that kind of ruined Tom and Huck for me because mm-hmm. he's doing sitcom acting while everyone else is doing yeah. not great period acting, but, like, they're at least trying to, like, fill out these characters. And he's, like, literally, like, he walked off the set of a 90s sitcom and it was just like making wisecracks and I was I just couldn't get into the movie because I never bought him as Tom Sawyer I never bought him as no. any character he just like I feel like he's constantly mugging for the camera even if he's not directly staring at the camera and that his only assets are really his smile and the charm of his appearance I don't think he has a charming personality um, to the extent that uh, Becky also linked us to clips of JTT promoting the movie Wild America on different talk shows, and he is empty-headed. He cannot string together a sentence of his own without someone writing it for him. He had, like, one anecdote from the set that he told on every talk show. Yeah, I I mean, I have to agree with you as an adult. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, I really struggled trying to find okay why did i like this person so much 
he definitely he has a unique look. I, we were watching Tom and Huck, and I was like, he doesn't look like Tom Sawyer because he doesn't look like the all American boy. Like he's got like some like pouty lips and like like unique eyes. Like he looks kind of exotic. And Again, I think he's got he's some. He's got like a softer feminine. Yeah, he's got a he's feminine short. facial structure. He's short. He so is a shorty. That um, too. Like there's something that's very likable and welcoming. Twinkie. Yeah, I didn't say it, um, <laughs> but it's true. There's something like very unassuming and likable and relatable like like he could be the guy in your class and maybe that's why i liked him um but like as far as like his actual talent like i think he's fine i would he i mean i guess we know the answer would he be uh, like a successful adult actor and i guess it's just not happening because well <laughs> well he's like, really bad in speedway junkie yeah. but that's really also bad really poorly shot and written so it's like hard to say That's like true. where the problem is coming from but i don't remember being taken out of movies like i'll be home for christmas like maybe that's a better fit for him because he's like i think Disney he has stuff. to play contemporary i think he's very much like a tom cruise where it's like you always see him and you're always like yep that's you and he just needs to play jonathan taylor thomas in every movie I honestly find it a little creepy like i was watching those clips um when he was promoting the movie too and he's just so well rehearsed and well spoken. Never takes a misstep. Just seems so normal. Ne- like everything he says seems really coached, kind of like yeah. Everything- he doesn't see that. Didn't seem normal to me. That just seemed like pre-programmed, and right. like he was like Stockholm syndroming, like reading off a ransom note or something. Yeah, he doesn't have this like presence that. Maybe he some... doesn't feel like a present human being. <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far. He just doesn't have this personality that like jumps off the page and you're like, wow, what a star. Yeah. Like Russell Brand or somebody. I'm trying to think of like a celebrity that's like, whoa, watch out. Like they're full of like life. Yeah. I mean, this I think speaks to his appeal, but he's very safe mm-hmm. and very like you, you would hire him if like I was like directing a movie, you would hire him because it's like, oh, I know he's going to show up and like not be snorting coke with hookers in the back. Trailer. Yeah. Well, and I also feel like Home Improvement was the epitome of, like, a traditional conservative right-wing, in a lot of ways, sitcom about not just a white heteropatriarchal family, but, like, a middle-class white heteropatriarchal family. Like, not even, like, working class or poor. Yeah, the show is very down the middle, for sure. I mean, I know that I was a huge fan of that show, which is weird to me to realize now, because... I don't remember anything about it, really. Yeah, just him. Yeah. I mean, I looked back at my old journals that are not quite as <laughs> interesting as Becky's, but I would be, like, excited, like, that it was home improvement night, and there was something kind of nice. I mean, this was the era when there were still these big hits that, like, everyone was watching, and you could go to school the next day, and, like, literally everyone had seen home improvement. This is a very, like, inclusive kind of thing, mm-hmm. which I, like, I was included in the conversation about right. that. And anyone in my class, like, it didn't matter. Like, the cool kids watched it, and I watched it, and we didn't have a lot in common otherwise. But, like, through, like, talking about last night's home improvement, like, it was like, oh, everyone agrees that this is cool. There was no hierarchy about, you know, home improvement. Got it. Did y'all look up ratings for home improvement? Like, it, was it, like, a huge hit? Oh, it was a huge hit. It was hit. a huge for hit, yeah. a lot of seasons, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and he left before the show ended. He's like, I'm out oh, of here. Oh, I forgot that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting that, like, I looked at a picture of him recently. We'll post this on our social. And he looks fine. Like, he just looks like a guy. He's an attractive guy. He's very cute. He has kind of a Rachel Maddow thing going on. Yeah. Like, he's got glasses. I mean, he looks like... I. 
if I saw him in real life today, I wouldn't even turn my head to be perfectly honest. And yet I bring up this picture of him as a 16 year old. And I think it's the hottest picture of anybody in the world. Yeah. I feel very inappropriate. (laughs) Like looking back at these pictures because just my memory is like, yep, that's what a hot guy is. Well, but I think this is a thing to talk about and to talk out because despite the kind of inoffensive nature There is a Madonna whore aspect to the public image of all these teen heartthrobs because there is always a not even subtle current of sexiness and hotness that is absolutely not just a part of their public image, but a cultivated part of their public image. And I think it's kind of instrumental in how they get so popular, especially in places like America and in the UK. You're meant to be attracted to that. Like, that's that's taken advantage of as part of making these people into huge celebrities. True, but you're going to have those feelings anyway. So it's it, it is it's a manufactured like selling to teenage girls of like here are the boys that you should like. But like they're going to like boys anyway. And if like maybe we didn't have Bot magazine telling them like Becky might have picked, you know, Jeffrey Rush and Shine, I don't know. <laughs> you know, whoever else. But it's like, these are the six boys that you can choose and every girl right. gets that's, to choose one. Right, like, that's kind of my point. It's like, that's how like these celebrities being defined by their image and not by their actual work, <laughs> like mm-hmm. in terms of acting or anything, narrowed kind of the public image of who could be a teen actor or a, you know, young star. Yeah, I mean, it does make me wonder, like, a chicken or the egg thing. Like, was Jonathan Taylor Thomas, he was on a really big hit show, so he was very visible. But, like, was there a lot of teen girl interest in him, like, organically? Or was that kind of seized on and, like, then brought to the teen girls? And more of the suggestion from those magazines is what caused the stardom. I bet you because he was in the great a great age range on a hit show that they probably put him in some magazines and the ones that like had right. him on the cover like did better than others. So yeah. they're like, okay, well, right. there's some exactly. organic interest. We're presenting people. These people are the top, so we're going to push them harder. Well, yeah. but again, nothing about it is organic. These are not people who get famous on the basis of any actual talent or ability or achievement they have. All of these shows, all of these movies were all created by big entertainment conglomerates. And things like casting decisions, especially of kid actors, was very much like defined around who is like pretty looking. Who who can we sell to the magazines if we cast them on our show. But that's not really that different than any other casting for the most part. I mean, there are a few movies that like want more interesting character actors, but the general like movie that comes out is like everyone's pretty good looking in it. This leads us to our next teen heartthrob, one Mr. Jonathan Brandis. Jonathan Brandis was born April 13th, 1976 in Connecticut. He died November 12th, 2003. He hung himself. Jonathan Brandis was a child model at two years old, and he was cast as an actor on One Life to Live at the age of six. In 1990, at the age of 14, he had two breakthrough roles in 1990's Never Ending Story 2, The Next Chapter, and in Stephen King's It, which we covered in episode 27 of this very podcast. As we learned in that episode, the TV miniseries version of It was a huge ratings hit for for ABC with 30 million viewers in its premiere, which definitely gave Jonathan Brandis a lot of exposure in terms of being a child actor. And that same year, he was the lead character Bastion in NeverEnding Story 2. The first NeverEnding Story movie was a big hit, and the second one was a big ol' flop. 
It was in theaters? It wasn't just on TV? It, it was in theaters. I saw it at the dollar store down the street from where I lived, like right when it came out, basically. The story of the sequel to the first movie is basically a retread of the first movie. It's about a lonely, anxious, and bullied boy retreating into a book called The Neverending Story, and he is transported into the dream world of Fantasia. Put it back! That book asks too much of you. But it's the never-ending story. I've already read it. Ah, but have you ever read a book twice? Books change each time you read them. Give it back. I really want to read it again. No, 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 no. Look what I found for you. Let me borrow it, please. No, Bastion. I watched clips from this online, and my main takeaway was that he has beautiful eyes. I can confirm that she said that multiple times. <laughs> that was a takeaway in my young life of seeing him in the theaters. Was he was a beautiful boy who I liked very, very much. Wait, Seth, have you seen these movies recently? Yes, I rewatched The NeverEnding Story Part 2. Okay. Does, is it as good as the first one? Is it No, it's terrible. <laughs> okay. The first one the first one is not nearly as good in retrospect either, right. but the second one is especially bad. He's cuter than the little boy in the he first one. Very much cuter than the little boy in the first one. Atreyu is played by a different actor in the oh. second one and he is far inferior to the original. Um, I did not have a tiny person crush on him. <laughs> there were scenes of Jonathan Brandis uh, as part of his like swim team at his school. And I remember at that time being very confused and having strange feelings about that. What was it like as an adult seeing your young, like your crush from back in the day? Well, this time rewatching it, I remembered why I was so into the never-ending story, because it's the story of a young boy who is lonely, anxious, bullied, and who retreats into books. And it's like, that was me. That was basically the long and short of me. It's a biopic. Yeah, it's pretty much a biopic. After that, Jonathan Brandis starred in 1992's Ladybugs. The lead character of the movie is Rodney Dangerfield, who stars as a salesman engaged to his girlfriend, and not yet succeeding as a father figure to her son, played by Jonathan Brandis. Jonathan Brandis' character is very lazy about school, but he happens to be a very talented soccer player. So when Rodney Dangerfield's character agrees to coach his boss's girl's soccer team to get a promotion, he enlists Jonathan Brandis to go in drag and join the girls' soccer team to help coach them to victory, which of course he promptly does. None of that is like a plausible plot when you say it aloud. <laughs> Really? When you say it like that, it's terrible. Like, and when you watch it, it's I terrible. I mean, not even the part with the drag, because that's obviously, like, you have to suspend your disbelief for that. But, like, his job depends on, like, coaching his boss's daughter's soccer team? Just remember, we got to be careful. I don't want your mother to find out. She'll kill me. God, I can't believe I'm doing this. Don't worry, I'll be finished soon. Ow! Take it easy, that hurts. All right, don't worry. If it's too tight, you'll get used to it. We all three watched this movie again. This movie, we could oh, do yeah. a whole episode on this movie. Oh yeah, no, it's un it's unbelievable. Um, it does not hold. And, um, I, it, it <laughs> okay, not we don't need to do the episode. Then. <laughs> I mean, to say it doesn't hold up is to imply that it was up at the time, which it was not. It was up at the time for 
us, I think. I liked it when I was yeah. a kid. Oh, I I loved the shit out of that movie as a kid. I definitely saw it on videotape. That was like a blockbuster rental. Rodney Dangerfield is at least 20 years too old for this role. And like the most lecherous looking man oh my God. in the world. This, my big, I guess we're, we're getting a little off the topic of Jonathan Brandis specifically, but this movie is like the most sexist, like oh, creepy there's movie. There's a scene where he's literally just, the whole scene is him sexually harassing his boss's secretary literally the entire scene this is like a four pages on the script long scene of just him sexually harassing her non-stop and she is loving the shit out of it um and that yeah yeah it's no it's insane the movie is bonkers there's a whole uh fantasy of jonathan brandis looking at the 16 year old girl like, like, ooh, she's my crush. And then music starts playing and she runs to him in the fantasy with just like a, a soccer, like uniform bikini. And then like everything is about how long her legs are and her boobs are out. And she's 16. It is so creepy. I remember that. Like that was the scene that when we were watching this again, as soon as the song Dream came on, dream, I was like, dream, 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 dream. <laughs> Yes, so creepy. That would be the song. I remember that moment like very vividly. And I like, I was like into that girl too at the time, I think. <laughs> Vanessa Shaw, we should shout out uh, also in Hocus Pocus and later Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> this was her transition role, I guess. <laughs> same character in all three. <laughs> Basically. These, all yeah. those movies take place in the same universe. But that was a like weird, like sexual awakening moment for me, I think. And some, like, I. That song made me feel creepy now because I think I remember watching this movie and like <laughs> being kind of like, oh, look at that girl, like running very unclothedly through the field. <laughs> Slowly with her boobs bouncing. Yeah. I mean, she does look older than 16. Yeah, sure, it's but. so creepy. And there's other Well, but mo- there's so much sexualization. There's literally one of the little, like the soccer, the soccer team, like most of these are little girls. They're like preteens yeah. at most. And there's one who's like 14 years old who's just joined the team who's like tarted up, has like, to, to, to be honest, like slutty looking makeup <laughs> and is talking about like her interests are like cute boys yeah. and cute boys and hot boys. Like there's such a like weird ingrained sexualization of everyone in this movie that just Whoa. comes off as really creepy. There's also another little girl on the team who is ugly because she has glasses and she puts her hair up. And Rodney Dangerfield gives her this pep talk where it's like, oh, but you're beautiful. And like, it's just not right to see like Rodney Dangerfield sitting next to a 12 year old girl. I mean, the scene is obviously not intended that way, but it's just like it does not play anymore. He cannot do subtle. So when his facial features are just so over the top that it really was like he was going to end the monologue with like, come into my van. Yeah. (laughs) Like, it's so creepy. No, it really seemed like that. And it's like, it's. I don't know. It's like it zigs everywhere that it should zag to emphasize Dangerfield's inherent ghastly, garish lookingness. <laughs> um, there could be a way that you could play that in a more Bad News Bears kind of scenario that would not be as lecherous and gross, but they just went for lecherous and gross. This movie was a horrible flop. The only redeeming thing about it is Jack Hay. Oh, and yes! I would say her funniest moment in it is Jack Hay plays Rodney Dangerfield's assistant coach. At their first team meeting, she's sitting with a foot-long Subway sandwich, and she's eating out of it for that whole sequence like it's a bowl. <laughs> And I don't know why, but for whatever reason, that was a genuinely funny thing that happened in this movie, and it stood out because that was the only one. 
Yeah, she's really funny in this movie, even though like her character doesn't make a lot of sense or just even really have much of a character. She's just kind of there. She's to, just like, the Jack A. She's yeah. just Jack A. Mm-hmm. But she adds some flavor to this movie. Literally, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And like something about it is slightly less creepy that she's in on it too. Because, I mean, we can't ignore the central premise of this movie, which is that a 60-ish guy dresses his girlfriend's son up as a little girl. In secret. <laughs> in secret. And, like, that is kind of played in moments for, like, lecherous humor, like when they're in the dressing room together and there's another woman who thinks that something creepy is going on in there. But, like, it also, like, the movie does not reckon with, like, how psychologically disturbing that it would be for the boy. Well, and it also doesn't reckon with the fact that the boy is going in on it because he wants to bang another uh-huh. little girl on the team. Yeah. Like, that's a creepy-ass part of it, too. I mean, it's This is a movie about sexual dysfunction being passed down along generations. And then when he finally tells her off-screen that he's actually a boy, she's fine with it because she she's is, not a real person. Yeah, she's so down with it. That's, that was a crazy part to me. Is like it, I was waiting to see how that, it actually played out in this movie. It doesn't play out, no. It doesn't. But I, I mean, like I'm okay more or less with him like lusting after her because that's like a 16-year-old boy does does lust after a 16-year-old girl and there's nothing wrong with that. At least, like, that's age-appropriate. There's another scene in this movie, like, it's supposed to be a joke scene where they're, all the girls are going skinny dipping at, like, the house. Like, one of the parents' houses. And, like, the joke is that, like, oh, well, Jonathan Brandis can't go skinny dipping because then they'll see he's not a girl. But I'm like, in what world do a bunch of, like, 13-year-old girls go skinny dipping in the middle of a day at, like, some parent's house? Yeah, like, that did not happen. I can verify. That's you would not a get thing. so arrested for that. I mean, I... It was not like that for me when I was a 15-year-old girl, but I can't speak universally. Either way, being unrealistic was not exactly going out of the way from this movie. Did you guys think that Jonathan Brandis did a good performance? Like, was he, is he, um, like, a saving grace in this movie? Is he fine? He's not a saving grace, but again, there's no material for him to save the movie with. You know, like, it's very clearly a star vehicle for Rodney Dangerfield. It's very clearly a star vehicle to try to make Rodney Dangerfield into an older leading man. And that just does not work at any level, for mostly for the reasons you mentioned, Becky. Um, but I don't think there's really any way for Jonathan Brandis or any actor to kind of pull it above and to give it any levity. Yeah, I suspect the script was slightly better at some point or worked better at least with the premise because I think it was probably written for a younger actor like Seth was saying he's too old for the role and someone who's just doesn't have that like creepy vibe Rodney Dangerfield's whole shtick is like really pervy and that can be funny in stand-up but it doesn't work in a movie about a bunch of little girls (laughs) and it's just it's the movie often stops to let him like do his shtick honestly it feels like they had another movie ready to go and lost their leading actor or like ran out of money and re- like had to recast it to be Rodney Dangerfield. It seems like Rodney Dangerfield was shoehorned into this movie about a kid who goes into drag to join a soccer team. I mean, I basically, I knew Rodney Dangerfield was in this movie, but I didn't remember a single thing about him or his character. 
what was burned into my brain was like Jonathan Brandis and that story. And in my memory, that story was so much more interesting than it actually is in the oh, movie. Yeah. Like it's glossed over in the movie, but there are a couple of like almost good scenes where like he's like running back and forth between the girl that he likes who thinks he's a girl. So he's wearing the wig and his mom who's home and like obviously knows he's a boy. And so that stuff is still like plays well. And I think like hints at a much better movie. Surprise! I like that. Um, I hope you don't mind me dropping in. Somebody tell me where you live. Oh no, I don't mind at all. I was just uh watching some TV. Well, can I watch with you? Okay. It's in the family room. Okay. Why don't you go in there while I uh, close the door? Okay. You can tell there's some thoughtfulness behind his performance in drag. Yeah. Like in, in a way that not every person of that age, not every child actor would actually commit. Yeah, he's uh, playing it for real. I mean, yeah. I believe him more or less in what in he's doing. In that sense, yeah. I, th- I do think, uh, and actually, I think that's being fairer to him than I have been so far. Because um, I think that's true. I think he does have some thoughtfulness to that performance, or that part of the performance. I also just have to say, like, how weird it, this movie made me feel. It's so, yeah, I had the ickiest feeling. For one, I think Jonathan Brandis is a bit of a weird age for this role, because he's 16 in the movie. And it's like, if it was a younger kid, it's like, you don't have to, like, think about the sex aspect of it. It's just like, oh, it's a 12-year-old boy dressing as a girl, and that's like, you can, like, underplay that. Or if he's older, it's not quite so creepy. Like, if he was, like, an 18-year-old, then it's just like... That's comedy, and he's, you know, of legal age and whatever. But it's, like, 16, and he still, like, looks like a 16-year-old, and they have him, like, changing into a dress, and you see him, like, kind of shirtless. I remember seeing this movie as a kid and seeing him in the blonde wig and being like, well, he's pretty, and I, like, found him appealing, but I was like, but what does that mean? This went from being a critique of the movie to being, like... Critique of ourselves. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it's been to, like, some gender-bending... Well, I mean, yeah, but this movie brings up those weird feelings that at the time I had no idea what to do with. And so I just kind of, I think, ignored them. But, you know, it was just like, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) Is is he a girl? Is he a boy? Which one do I like? Like, I don't know. (laughs) Like, are you kind of into him dressed as a girl? But what does that say? Like, that you like a, yeah, like... Which is also interesting because so many of these other teen idols are also a little bit, you know, like, soft and kind of feminine-looking in ways. So it's like, this movie just made me... (laughs) really like (laughs) recoil of it in the labyrinth episode we were talking about the david bowie sexual awakening of chrissy (laughs) and i feel like this one was mine in a way and i but in a bad way yeah (laughs) i mean yeah it it wasn't like lady bugged (laughs) it was not sexual in any way but it was more just like the first time i can think of a movie making me feel that uncomfortable and making me kind of confront something that i was like i don't know what that means so i'm just gonna deny it but i think it is i think it's psychosexual even if it's not like overtly erotic and again i think like there's there's something within the premise of this movie that in the hands of like a capable indie film type director could grapple with that in a very interesting way and not in a disrespectful way but this movie obviously had nothing of a brain uh, so it had nothing to kind of feed that with or reflect on it and I also don't think it kind of spurs those feelings intentionally no that's the thing is I feel like this movie is actually kind of irresponsible because it was marketed to kids and it stars kids so it has the um like the feel of a kid's movie and you can watch it when you're a kid thinking it is a kid's movie but it's not a kid's movie it's really kind of messed up and the fact that like 
as kids, we were like led along to believe that this was okay and that he was still the hero of yeah, this story. It's gross. Is like makes me feel a little violated, to be honest. Like yeah. as a child, I totally am there with you. Do you think he is a good actor in general? I've solidified my opinion more in that I don't think any of these heartthrobs were very good actors. But again, I don't know if there is someone to fault for that. They're victims of their own success because so much of their success was based around their looks and their being the age that they were when they were first starting to be in things. And I think that if times had been different, if they had found collaborators, especially writers and directors who were better, then they would have been cast in better things and they would have had their range tested. Jonathan Brandis was certainly in a ton of TV shows. He was in like one-off episodes of Murder, She Wrote, of single episodes of things. But either he didn't have like enough kind of obvious talent to carry him beyond aging out of the teen bracket or he just never got the opportunities to try to, like, graduate from that public image. In conclusion to that, fuck Chuck Norris. Then in 1993 came Jonathan Brandis's biggest hit and the thing that launched him to official heartthrob status, the show Sequest DSV. Sequest DSV, and it was later retitled Sequest, uh, Sequest 2032 in its final season, ran for three seasons on NBC from September 12, 1993 to June 9, 1996. This was a show that began as one kind of based in science fiction and more on the science side of science fiction. They had a very popular oceanologist, Bob Ballard, as a scientific consultant on the show. And many of the early episodes talked about natural phenomenon, like underwater volcanoes, and the kind of like scientific exploration, more Star Trek-y side of things. The show was produced by Steven Spielberg, too, so it had kind of a good pedigree. The main star of the show was Roy Scheider as the captain of this ship. Roy Scheider of Spielberg's Jaws, for those who don't know. Of Jaws fame. Roy Scheider and Jonathan Brandis were two of the most consistent stars of the show, although Roy Scheider left at some point and came back later because the show took such a dip in ratings. Did you watch Sequest? I watched the hell out of Sequest very early on, but there was a point at which it completely just ran off the rails, really like midway in the first season, mm-hmm. and it never really recovered from me, so I stopped watching it. And the show that it was opposite of at the time was Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Ooh. Superman. Tough contest. Yes, and and I, of course, wearing my Easy red contest. wearing my red cowboy boots, I chose Lois and Clark. And you Dean chose Kane. Clark. I definitely chose Clark. So, yeah, so he was incredibly popular, you know, during Sequest. But basically, during that point, and certainly as the show had ended, he really had trouble getting cast in anything else. Even though he had been in this incredibly successful Stephen King adaptation, even with the other movies that he'd been in, and even with this really hit show, basically, past the point of puberty, he was no longer a hireable actor in Hollywood. I read that he got cast in Hearts War, which is this Bruce Willis movie. I forgot who the director was, but he thought that that would really be his, like, breaking into, like, being an adult actor with, like, dramatic meteor roles. But a lot of his role got cut in the final cut of the movie. And I think that what I read, at least, was that that really, like, devastated him. And he, you know, went into depression, like, that he couldn't get work. Yeah, no, it's a- and that's absolutely true. It was Hart's War that he thought was really going to, again, help him kind of get out of that 
box that growing older as a teen heartthrob had put him into and he was basically entirely cut out of the final cut of that movie oh he wasn't even in the final cut at all yeah not really i think he's in like maybe one scene and that's it yeah he has a really brief appearance i think it's really it's really tragic that he took his own life and obviously i don't know what else was going on in his life but I can picture him today being on, like, a WB show. You know, he's Jonathan Brandis. There is some nostalgia factor at this point that I can... And he is handsome. Like, I can easily see him being on, like, some sort of teen show or, like, an older, like, early, like, youngish dad. Like, how old would he be today? So he was born in the late 70s. So he'd be in his, like, late 30s, early 40s. I can totally see him on some TV show. Well, and it's like a lot of the kind of Joshua Jacksons of the world, the folks from those later kind of Party of Five, all of those numerical (laughs) uh, soapy dramas, um, they all get steady work. They all get TV work on procedurals and shit. He would have been in, like, a CSI Miami or something like that. Yeah, Chicago hospital show or something, you know? Chicago garbage. Chicago. Yeah, and I think that's just, it's really sad that if that is the reason, like his career, why he took his oh, own it to- life. It like, definitely was. It's really uh, sad. It wasn't. <laughs> Sorry. I have. Oh, oh. Well, there are a lot of different reports of reasons why he committed suicide. I think it's more his career. I read an account from one of his best friends who said that it wasn't his career that caused this, that no one really knows what it was personally, but that he kind of had like a dark sense of humor. And I think you can kind of see that kind coming out of him later in his career in, in like the later 90s and early 2000s. We were watching a clip of him and he kind of had like a Kurt Cobain thing going on, which I think makes sense because... And I think that was part of his appeal to me. Yeah. Definitely. And so I think his brand, Brandis' brand, <laughs> was like cute, sensitive boy. And that brand like didn't carry over into adulthood and that's not who he was anymore so and he, he couldn't, couldn't be Jonathan Brutus <laughs> <laughs> it was like starting all over probably because he was looking for entirely different roles he used to wear like a t-shirt that says fuck pilot season to <laughs> pilot auditions <laughs> that's funny yeah and so he had a sense of humor about that so some of his friends didn't think that that was the reason that it was more personal reasons but just um yeah I was reading a little bit more about his death and like he Killed himself while his friend was over at his apartment. He, his friend thought he had gone to bed. So he was like leaving Jonathan's apartment and then opened the hallway door and he was hanging outside in the hallway of his apartment. And um, he didn't die immediately. He was rushed to the hospital, but declared brain dead. It cuts against the traditional narrative we have of all the opportunities being for men in Hollywood, that I don't think there are really many opportunities for teen heartthrobs to become known as actors beyond their teen heartthrob status. Right, their appeal is cheesy. Like, that's part of it. Their appeal is this nostalgia. Chris, I think you're absolutely right that it would be like starting from zero pretty much no matter how you approach it if you're already, if this is the only thing you're known for is that image and that cheesiness. I think there's also a difference between um, guys and girls in that sense is that girls who are like 18, 19, they're still like very much like an interest in them. I mean, that's 
in many ways like the prime age for like young actresses and for a guy like it's kind of like there's a gap between when you're like a cute kid and teenager and then when you're like a man and like so many roles require you to be like a tough guy or something like that so it's not believable for you to do that at 19 or 21 so there's really a limited amount of roles that you can even play at that age like most leading man roles you couldn't play until you're you know 25 30 and a lot of early 20-year-olds played teenagers. Yeah, so the actual teenagers, I feel like, get shafted a lot of times. So that will bring us to Brad Baron Renfro. Baron? Baron. Two R's. He was born July 25th, 1982 in Knoxville, Tennessee. He was raised by his grandmother. He was discovered after, in fifth grade, acting up in a dare to keep kids off drugs program. He acted up to a policeman and got kicked out. Later, when uh, the client was casting uh, for the character of Mark Sway, uh, who's like a rough and tumble like kid from Tennessee, like wrong side of the tracks, um, they wanted an authentic kid who is definitely like actually Southern, like the kind of kid that you would find in the principal's office. And so they did an unusual casting search and like asked like priests in these Southern cities and police departments. And so this cop <laughs> remembered this kid uh, who was 10 years old at the time and said, like, here's your kid. And the casting agent, like, came out to see him and, like, thought he was brilliant, like, immediately. Wow. How old was he in The Client? Ten. Wow. Really? He definitely... The character's 11, but, yeah, he's 10, and that's crazy because he's so mature in certain ways. He looks older than 10, Yeah, he definitely looks older than 10. He carries himself like an aware, present person. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, so they flew him to L.A. It was his and his grandma's first time on a plane to go for the screen test. Hey, when's your boss coming back? May I help you? No, I need to see Reggie Love. Why, may I ask? Well, that's between me and Mr. Love. I'm Reggie Love. You're a woman lawyer. Oh, great. I think so. Now, why is it you think you want a lawyer? I don't want a lawyer. I hate lawyers. Every lawyer I ever had just shafted me and my mom. I said I need a lawyer. But I don't know about no woman. So The Client was a really big hit. The reviews were kind of mixed. I mean, most people kind of liked it. It was a pretty passable thriller. It was directed by Joel Schumacher. It starred Susan Sarandon as uh, Brad Renfro's lawyer. And Tommy Lee Jones as sort of the opposing lawyer, being very Tommy Lee Jones-ish. In it, Mark Sway witnesses the suicide of a mobster and who tells him the uh, location of a body. And so the mafia is after him and the opposing counsel is after him to try and get to find out where it is. But um, there's a lot of similarities between Brad Renfro and the character that he plays. He has like a single mom played by Mary Louise Parker in a really kind of interesting performance because she's really like trailer trashy. He just like really was that character. And I think you can tell that in the performance. Like it was just so authentic. And a lot of critics called out his performance as being kind of like the standout thing from the movie. Uh, For example, Ebert said in his review, Brad Renfro is a movie newcomer who seems to be a natural actor. He's from Knoxville, Tennessee, inexperienced except for school productions, but he has an unforced conviction and a lot of backbone and provides a strong center for the film. And those aren't like the kind of words that you often hear like child actors described with. like (laughs) Backbone, like... Well, I mean, like, to me, the ones who are described that way are usually actresses, like a Dakota Fanning or mm. an Elle Fanning <laughs> or whoever any other Fanning person a is. Fanning, yes. <laughs> any given Fanning. 
So for that, he was awarded Hollywood Reporter's Young Star Award, his first of two. And then uh, he was cast as the young version of Brad Pitt in Sleepers. I can't think of anybody who needs to hear about it. I mean, either they won't believe it or they won't give a shit. Yeah, I don't even think we should talk about it once it's over, you know? We got no choice but to live with it. And talking makes living it harder. So might as well not even talk about it. The truth stays with us. I used to love that movie. That's a really dark movie. Still to don't love think too. I've ever seen yeah. I read the book and I loved that movie. Kevin Bacon played like a really uh, gross, like child molester, like juvie guard. That I remember it. Yeah. Now. Yeah. I've never seen the movie all the way through, but yeah, it, I watched the beginning of it for this just to kind of see. And he was obviously like perfect for these kinds of roles of like wayward use. I mean, God forbid you see like Jonathan Taylor Thomas in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think you could take him seriously in a role like that for yeah, one thing. But yeah. also just like what a different career he would have had, you know, like I feel like Brad Renfro was really called in for like serious acting roles and the like the dark stuff. Like he was in a lot of movies and he was on like all the covers of the teen magazines, just like everyone else. But, like, the movies he was in were mostly adult fare. Like, the exception is Tom and Huck, which he starred in with Jonathan Taylor Thomas. We already kind of talked about that, but it's really weird to see them acting together because they're such different kinds of actors. And you really believe Brad Renfro as, like, Huckleberry Finn, this kid in the 1800s who's, like, you know, all wild and crazy. I mean, as much as you can in a movie like this, like, he's pretty convincing in that role. And then Jonathan Taylor Thomas is, like, sitcom acting next to him. It really highlights the difference between these two teen idols, even though looking at a magazine cover, you wouldn't know the difference between them, really. It felt like somebody like JTT had, like, publicists behind him and was, like, even if he wasn't you know, putting himself out there for the magazines, his publicists and his team were. And it felt like more like Brad Renfro probably rarely gave like teen bop interviews or, you know, did anything that was trying to market himself that way. It just, he kind of like just fell in that trap. Yeah. Yeah. So I think he was like kind of the alternative choice. Like if Jonathan Taylor Thomas or Devin Sawa was like too clean cut for you or too like much of a good boy, like you could you could go for Brad Renfro because, like, he definitely had that rebellious thing. I mean, literally in his personal life, but it also came through in, like, the roles that he played. Like, there was something very, unlike all the rest of these idols, I think there's something that always felt kind of dangerous about him and unhinged. Yeah, he seemed to have an actual edge, even if it wasn't one that was, like, fully on display in all his roles. Like, there's... I totally agree there's, like, both a presence in his, like, performances on screen, but also kind of an edge to who he seemed to be as a person. Mm-hmm. And then in 1998, he starred in Apt Pupil, starring uh, Ian McKellen as a Nazi. Brad Renfro plays a high school student uh, who becomes obsessed with the neighbor Nazi and wants to know, like, all the kind of grisly details of what he used to do um, in the concentration camps. And uh, this is based on a short story by uh, Stephen King. Who's that? No, Another no, shout out to our episode, what was it, 27? Yes, yes. Yes. So this is it was in the same book as the uh, story that inspired Stand By Me. But um, it was not as successful. <laughs> <laughs> the movie, I think, is okay. I know I saw it at the time. I think probably on video. Um, 
it's interesting though. It's like a different kind of teen movie. It's like it's not like the character is really dark. He's like blackmailing his teachers and blackmailing this Nazi. He like forces the Nazi to dress up in these in his old like uniform and march for him and like it's Ooh. really like kind of chilling and so even though the movie itself I don't think is a great movie it's like interesting to watch and it's just like it goes places that you maybe wouldn't expect this kind of movie to go yeah we watched the trailer before sitting down to record and I didn't see the movie but I do remember seeing the trailer and being like wow they're actually going there with this yeah like it, it and I didn't even have obviously like a ton of context for it at the time but it was still like pretty audacious it's a very daring movie i think like for the time and i'm surprised it got made kind of yeah it it was a high profile movie too it wasn't like an under the radar movie it was brian singer's follow-up to the usual suspects and he was Hmm. like really hot commodity then because that was a huge movie how the hell was he in tom and huck (laughs) like after all these movies like i just find it strange that he somehow was like okay i'll do this disney movie that seems like the closest one to a, like, your publicist or your agent or manager tells you, okay, do the fun kids one, like, just to have it on your career. It's That's what it feels like. Yeah. What was after After Pupil? Was there... After After Pupil, he was in a couple of, like, indie movies, and then he was in Ghost World. Oh, yeah! As a supporting role. I love Ghost World. I too. so don't remember him in Ghost World, He's and like, I love uh, that movie. He's, like, convenience store friend. Oh! Uh, Okay. He has a crush on Scarlett Johansson. And he was in Bully. But so 1998, when Apt People came out, was kind of the point when his like personal life started to also take a downturn. He was first arrested for drug possession of marijuana and cocaine that year when he was 15. Wow. And in 2000, he was shooting the movie Bully, which was directed by Larry Clark, who did Kids. So it's another gritty movie. Um, while shooting that movie, he got high and stole a yacht. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, he's now my hero? Yeah. (laughs) Except he forgot to untie it from the dock. So he didn't get very far. No. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Or did he take the dock with him? (laughs) And then, like, he, so he got put in jail for that and went, like, immediately to the set of the movie to, like, film his scenes. So there was definitely, like, signs of trouble, and he was, like, kind of in and out of, like, recovery during these times. Like, he has an interview at some point saying, like, oh, I'm really thankful that, you know, all this messed up stuff happened to me when I was really young and, like, 18 or however old he was, because now I've learned my lesson. But as often happens with um, people who are addicted to drugs, like, they get, you know, kind of pulled back into it. He died January 15th, 2008, which was almost exactly 10 years ago. It was also the week before Heath Ledger died. So it was wow. a dark time. The same year. Oh, wow. Like the he's, same week. He's yeah. very reminiscent of Heath Ledger. And I think, I feel like he was turning into a Heath Ledger. Like that kind of, you know, starring in teen. He never even really starred in teen movies. There was yeah, only that's Tom what Huck. I was going to say. It's like it, it, he didn't even yeah. seem to have required yeah. that kind of like Knight's Tale kind of. Yeah, he didn't need a monster's ball or yeah. anything. Like he was already like, go- I feel like he was going to be an, a working adult actor and maybe win an Oscar one day and be in, in really great independent movies. And- yeah, he definitely, I think, absolutely could have if he didn't have a drug problem like yeah, he eventually Jesus. became an unreliable actor and like couldn't get insurance on his movies so that's why you didn't see a lot of like he's in a lot of like small like movies that you never heard of in the 2000s Man. but he's not that's like kind of where 
like he drops off of like public recognition. So I remember when he died because I had been kind of a fan of his or at least a passing fan, like appreciated his acting. But I had also not thought about him in a while because I was like, oh, where did he go? You just don't know. You just kind of assume they like go to college or something, you know, mm-hmm. take some time off. Go to a nice farm upstate. <laughs> I mean, whenever I see like Dakota Fanning was gone for a little bit and I was like, oh, she probably went to school, you know, because you're only so much older and you can't like take tutors to go to like Columbia, mm-hmm. you know, so you take a little time and you come back and you're an adult actor. And I yeah. think that's probably what I assumed he was doing. Yeah, it's just, he feels like kind of like a Kurt Cobain figure where it's just like, it's really in the cards, like all along, like you just look at it and you're like, I mean, it really makes sense that he died of a heroin overdose after like, you know, kind of a rough upbringing and Hollywood doesn't help. But I mean, I honestly think that one one way or another, it probably would have been a similar kind of story. Right before he died, like two days before he died, he got a tattoo that said, fuck all y'all on him. <laughs> Jeez. So I don't know what state of mind he was in. Did they think it, it was an overdose or a, a, like he was trying to? It was an accident. Yeah. Well, and it's also, I think, testament to how you bring whatever aspects of yourself are already there into it when you become famous. Like, there's nothing about the experience of becoming a famous person that makes you different than who you are. And if anything, it often highlights and exacerbates the worst aspects of yourself because those are like the coping mechanisms that you take that can you can deal with in quote-unquote normal life you know that like you can get heroin occasionally in normal life maybe maybe or cocaine or whatever it is you would get if you just held down a nine-to-five job but becoming people find it (laughs) right no it, it gets found but becoming a famous person gets you access to that constantly and if anything gets you often like rewarded or more more of an edge in your public image if you're seen to be someone with problems like that. But at the same time, like being an actor requires a level of professionalism that I think pulls people out of that a lot of times too, and at least like gives them another chance to get clean that someone who was just an addict and didn't have like a career wouldn't even have. You're totally right that they get more opportunities in theory to help themselves, but if they go in not having healthy attitudes about what it means to help yourself and how to ask for help, then that doesn't necessarily really help you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's so sad. As far as him being like a heartthrob, he was never like my guy, obviously. Um, Who was again? <laughs> I, I don't remember. Le- yeah, he was, a little, he was a little too serious and he wasn't in really kids movies, you know, even though mm. he was in Tom and Huck, like he just wasn't in kids movies. So it wasn't like I was really drawn to him. But I as an as him being an actor, I think he would have been not he was phenomenal. Yeah, I would really like to have seen him just kind of like beat those demons and like be working today and be like he could be Leonardo DiCaprio today. Yeah. I think I don't see there any reason why not. And I think like I didn't see a lot of his movies when I was a kid either because I was too young for most of them. But like his image as like the serious actor, like I think I respected him as a kid, which is mm-hmm. very different than like how I really felt about a lot of these other guys. So now we will move on uh, to someone who is alive still. That would be Devin Edward Sawa. Sawa. (laughs) Becky's first crush. Yes, but not for long. (laughs) Not for long, sorry. (laughs) Tepid Becky. You were replaced. Fickle Becky. (laughs) So Devin Edward Sawa was born September 7th, 1978 in Vancouver, British Columbia. So he's a Canadian, even though he kind of has an all-American look to him. Hmm. He's all Canadian. North American look. Yes. He uh, started acting in a school play in kindergarten, and 
that was basically his calling. He loved it. <laughs> he played a sailboat. <laughs> uh, his first big gig was as the Nerf spokes kid. Oh my god! <laughs> Do you have a commercial? I have two. <laughs> <laughs> It's Nerf or nothing. That was his uh, slogan. And who would have thought he could have topped that <laughs> by becoming a teen idol? But he did. He was in a few Canadian TV shows before his big break in the role of Casper McFadden. For uh, one whole <laughs> minute at the very end of the movie. <laughs> yeah. This was in 1995. He played a 12-year-old boy who died of pneumonia. <laughs> And became Casper the Friendly Ghost. Wait, Casper McFadden? I declined to do a deep research. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't rewatch Casper for this? I was curious. I actually did read Wikipedia. It didn't say anything about the actual Casper, and I was I determined not to do any more. Well, research. I'm still curious about Casper's ethnicity. <laughs> He's white. Oh, oh, is he? I'm not, I'm not sure. That's not made clear. Steven Spielberg produced Casper and is the one. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, I had totally forgotten that too. And he he seems like he was really involved in the movie, actually. I had a lot of special effects, you know. He did a cameo in the movie that eventually got cut out. <laughs> but he also, so when uh, Devin Sawa came to audition for the movie, um, he just, like, met, like, he's the one who, like, met Devin Sawa, like, in Universal Studios. And they went on, like, a bunch of rides together. <laughs> and I was like... Is that really Steven Spielberg's job? Like, isn't there someone else who could... Like, did he do that with, like, 400 different kids? He may have been trying to, you know, cast Hook or some other movie at the same time. You know, Mm -hmm. like, get a feel for him. This was, like, 95, so I guess it was, like, he was probably working on, like, Amistad. (laughs) Who's casting Amistad? (laughs) He's always working with kid actors, so maybe, you know, file it away. It was Devin Sawa or Jimon Onso. (laughs) (laughs) Devin Sawamastad. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the line that Becky said earlier from this movie that really became, I think, a masturbatory fantasy for so many girls, I don't know what to call it. Yes, yes. Okay, is uh, Can I Keep You? (laughs) Whispered. Which is whispered and manages to come off not creepy, which, I mean, it sounds creepy. It's the one way it's not creepy. Yeah. Can I keep you... In my underground sex dungeon. <laughs> That's how it usually ends, at least for me. I was talking about teen heartthrobs with some of my female friends recently, and like, who did you like? And they're like, JTT, Devon Sawa. And then we watched that clip from Casper, and my friend was like, she like was floored because she hadn't seen that clip in forever. And she was like, I remember when I saw him and I couldn't believe that anybody could be that beautiful. Really? <laughs> like it was just the beauty of him. And I was like, yeah, there was just something about him where I was like, oh, <laughs> like, like just something about he like he's literally his face is seen for like one minute. And you're just like and there's like a reveal because it's like, oh, he was a cartoon ghost and now he's a human person. But I'm just like, oh, that like how they revealed his face like he's a beautiful little boy (laughs) (laughs) see i i'm pretty sure i saw casper in theaters and like completely missed like that that was a moment yeah i was curious chris like because i i remember i must have seen it at a young age like on vhs or something but i did not have that reaction to a minute of devon i think this might have been a girl only casper thing maybe uh, something about it i mean 
Because I liked Christina Ricci a lot. She was my, like, favorite actress at the time. So I think, like, she was my conduit. Like, I was dancing with Devin Sawa in the air. If Christina can do it, why not me? <laughs> I can do it. I can dance with Devin Sawa. Casper can't not like me. <laughs> Therefore, I'm married to Devin Sawa. But the moment is obviously meant to, like, evoke, like, school dances. Mm-hmm. And, like, it feels very manufactured as, like, that moment that everyone had. So, good job. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember that movie being very good otherwise. Just that moment. So, (laughs) just masturbating to the end of Casper over and over again. Uh, So Devin Sawa, when he got cast as Casper, also was cast in Little Giants, which ended up coming out before, but he was Junior Floyd, the quarterback of a team... Oh, it's about football? It's about football. Isn't it with Rick Moranis, or are you thinking of something else? Yes, it's Rick Moranis. So, it's one of those movies where... An adult star coaches a team of kids. Yeah, kid. it's a kid's sports movie. Yeah, they're probably not very good, and then they win something at the end. I bet they have a lot of heart. Uh, I think it's, it's, this seems to be one of his most personal favorite performances, based on mm. what I read on his Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> based on my Twitter interview with Devin Sawa. Next, he was in Now and Then with Christina Ricci again. This sparked many rumors that the two had a, had a thing going on off screen and on screen. Mm. Um, would it be all right if, can I kiss you? I guess. Great, ready? You want to do it now? Sure. I mean, if you want to. Okay. Doesn't I think he's I think he like shows his butt in that movie. Yeah. I couldn't find that clip. I wanted to watch it again. I think I do remember that because that was pretty risque for us when we were I wasn't 10, in, 11. I wasn't into like I didn't want to see his butt. <laughs> <laughs> like that was a little too adult was for me. Was that what even, ended your romance? Like I didn't really care about shirts off. There's a scene in Tom and Huck where they like have their shirts off and they're covered in mud. I wasn't really into that. I wanted them to just look like lovingly at the camera at me you and know, just say like, Becky <laughs> Becky yeah like Becky. like I remember just to hand seeing you grapes. that scene of his like flashing his butt I think they're skinny dipping now and then and I was like uncomfortable I was like that's a little too much for me well that's interesting because it's like yeah these are very chaste crushes at this age like yeah. you're you're not really thinking sexual thoughts like you don't even know how to think sexual thoughts I don't think so it's like it's a strange thing to put in a kids movie I guess that movie kind of bridges maybe like it was kind of for adults too Mm -hmm. because it's about nostalgia and had a lot of adult stars that were popular too like Rosie O'Donnell and Demi Demi Moore Yeah, I mean, that's another, when you look back on it, it's like, why would you put that in a movie for I, kids? I don't think it's a kid's movie. I think it's like like a well, movie like for a tween older movie. Yeah. older teens and, and adults, honestly. So I still haven't seen it. I watched the clips that you sent along, but I still haven't seen it. It felt more like an American graffiti kind of nostalgia trip. Yeah, that's um, what it is, yeah. I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. I remember liking it at the time. It seemed like watching the clips, it seemed like it would hold up fine, like... It, there didn't seem to be anything like particularly embarrassing about it. There's a cute scene with Christina Ricci and Devin Sawa's first kiss. Did you see that one? Yeah, in the clip. Okay, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I thought Becky would appreciate this fact that he and Christina Ricci went to see Pulp Fiction multiple times Ooh, I do. Uh, while they were filming this movie because they both loved it. And then his next movie was uh, Wild America starring Scott Berstow and um, 
someone else, another teen actor. Uh, oh, Jonathan, Jonathan. Jonathan Weiss. Jonathan <laughs> Weiss. Really <laughs> I remember Wild America probably more than almost anyone else does. I don't know why. I was like looking forward to this movie a lot. And I think it was something about like the trailer shows them like they're filmmakers, they're documentary filmmakers, and they're going out into the wild. And it looks like there's a lot of like adventure and that like outdoorsiness really appealed to me. And just like a story of like boys who are my age, like, like I didn't have brothers, but I think I always liked stories about brothers and like imagining like I guess maybe I should just go into sort of my thoughts on some of these teen idols in general because like my experience is different in that I didn't have crushes on them I experienced them more as like knowing that girls really liked them and wanting like kind of like oh I want to be friends with Jonathan Taylor Thomas like if I was his friend then all the girls would like me too or I want to be Jonathan Taylor Thomas or Devin Sawa or like I just want to be more like Devin Sawa because you recognize these qualities in them that are very much the kind of qualities that make a 12-year-old boy popular in a elementary school. You know, it's no different. It's that they look, you know, cute and... Confident, cool. Yeah. Did the filmmaking aspect of the characters in Wild America appeal to you at all? I think that it did. I think that that was a part of it. It just like really looked like a movie that was for me and I was like super excited And then I saw the movie in theaters. I think I was one of few people, like, because this was 97. I had just turned 14. And it was so much more of a kid's movie than I wanted it to be. And I rewatched it uh, for the podcast. And yeah, it's pretty embarrassing in a lot of (laughs) things. Like, the effects, like, the animal effects can be embarrassing. There's Jonathan Taylor Thomas outruns a moose in the movie and then gets scooped up into his antlers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well Becky likes it <laughs> still gets Becky after all these years I've never seen this movie isn't I still that haven't. crazy I haven't either like yeah. two big crushes like yeah, the third know, right? brother could have been David Duchovny and I still probably would have seen it <laughs> I figured it out I was at camp that summer when it came out and then I started high school you and were I was, living your own wild America I know and then I was over JTT and Devin Sawa so I totally why missed didn't you graduate to Scott Barristow you could have still <laughs> seen this movie <laughs> I think this movie also might have a skinny dipping sequence, actually, that has, like, the same thing. Why is that a theme in these movies? I don't know. One of the big problems with this movie is that, like, there's a long beginning, and then they go on the adventure, and then there's a long ending. So, like, the actual adventure is really, like, it's definitely less than an hour of the Mm. movie. It's probably, like, 40 minutes. And the end of it is they go into a cave of bears and start singing to the bears and make them go back to hibernating. And I was just like, this is a movie based on real documentary filmmakers. And it just does not take wildlife seriously at all. Like, that you could, like, sing bears to sleep. It's just ridiculous. And so I I felt very betrayed by this movie. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, this is a kid's movie. Like, I wanted, like, a real movie Mm -hmm. about these filmmakers, like, actually going on adventures and stuff. So I was very disappointed in Devin and Jonathan. Mm. It's a no on Wild America, despite <laughs> my high hopes for it. Mild America. <laughs> uh, so Devin Sawa is three years older than Jonathan Taylor Thomas, um, but they were doing the same schoolwork on the set of Wild America because Jonathan Taylor Thomas was like super smart. I knew that. Yeah. Well, he went to Harvard. <laughs> so at this, this is about the time that Devin Sawa got kind of fed up with being a teen idol as pretty much all teen idols do. And so he decided to start doing weirder things. He did Idle Hands, co-starring Seth Green and Jessica Alba. This, okay, I have to 
say that good for him for trying something different, like making odd choices, which I think a lot of people don't do because mm-hmm. they're scared it'll turn off their audience or, you know, it'll backfire. And maybe it did backfire. But like that movie is I've only watched like a few clips online and it is like terrible. Oh, I loved this movie when it came out. Really? This was, I, so I, at the time, I was familiar with no other Devin Sawa performances. This was the first thing I ever saw him in. Did you like him in it? I fucking loved him in this movie. And I still enjoyed his performance. I think his performance is kind of surprisingly really good just as a physical comedy performance. I can yeah. see that. The movie is idiotic trash. The scene uh, I watched online was him, like with Jessica Alba and she's like barely wearing any clothes even though she's like a teenager still so that part I blocked out he like slaps her ass and she turns around and she's like oh I didn't think you had the balls to like treat me that way and they start she starts like making out with him and he has like blood on his shirt and he's acting like really strange and weird so you ran and hid in my boat uh Molly I I shouldn't be here I'm not myself today in fact, I'm someone completely different. You're so shy. It's okay, I get it. So why don't we just skip this chickening out, sneaking around no, stage? No, no, you don't understand. I'm being... Her character is chilling, because her character <laughs> is like this crazy, like, mega-slut vamp Ugh. who has no reason to be there but to come on to Devon Sawa. So, and I had totally forgotten all that part. I remembered almost nothing else for, from the movie, but Seth Green and that other guy being undead zombie people and Devon Sawa's, like, physical, comedic presence. Chris, did you see... No, Adam's? surprisingly, I never saw this movie. The movie came out in 1999, so I was, like, too young to see rated R movies by myself, like, in the theater. And so that's probably why I never saw it. Watching the trailer now, it looked, like, mildly appealing. Like, it's kind of a clever premise in a way. And it's, like, it's obviously, like, a dark comedy, so... I don't, I don't need any... I don't think I need 90 minutes of that premise. Yeah. I mean, I didn't watch it, so... <laughs> it wasn't appealing enough for that, but... But I applaud him for at least doing something really strange. Yeah. And then he did Final Destination, which was released in 2000. And, I mean... He was the lead in that movie, and it was a huge hit that spawned, like, many sequels. So that's kind of a good thing for him. Spoiler, does he die in that movie? He does not really die until, the like, the very end of the movie. Like, they resolve everything, and then in the end, like, I forget what it is. It's like a, he's at, like, a carnival or something, and there's something that, like, is about to fall on him, and they, like, cut to black. So it kind of implies that he does oh, okay. die. okay. I can't, I never saw the sequels. So he's not in the sequels. No, I don't think so. So he successfully transitioned into horror roles, at least for a little bit. He is still acting. Uh, He is married with children. He's now on a show on ABC called Somewhere Between. Hmm. He has a Twitter account that's pretty amusing. (laughs) You can follow Devin Sawa at Devin E. Sawa. Was at Devin Sawa taken? (laughs) <laughs> maybe it's a fan it probably account. was by some like little I bet it was by Mr. Blonde one who was like JTT's not working anymore better better get my Devin Sawa on greener pastures on to Sawa <laughs> and his uh, biography says ex-teen heartthrob but with the polar opposite beliefs as Kirk Cameron's <laughs> that's really the only important oh that's cute part. yeah so he's <laughs> He's kind of fun. Like, he does a lot of interviews now and is, like, t- totally willing to talk about, like, how embarrassing all this stuff is. And What does he look like now? Does he still have the same, like, very bright blonde hair? He looks normal now. 
He looks normal. <laughs> what is that? He well, was the one with the really cute gap in his front teeth, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I always thought that was a very distinguishing feature. I would not recognize him. He's got, like, short, oh my God. like, dirty blonde hair. Mm-hmm. I would not recognize him, but he's an attractive older man. Yeah. He has more of, like, a Jesse Pinkman vibe wow. going on now. Yeah, he looks like very gritty now. Yeah, yeah. He was very polished, blonde, eth- or ethereal look when he was younger. Yeah, and I think that goes to the point of, like, that they need a, a break between because, like, obviously, like, the image of Devin Sawa was never going to, like, just fluidly transition into right. that. Like, we didn't really see much from him after Final Destination, and that's probably because he was at that age where it was like, what do you do with a pretty boy who's yeah. a teenager, like, getting too old to actually play teenagers? He was in the Eminem Stan video. Yes, that's right. So that's one of his also favorite things that he's ever done. He's a big fan. He got that role because Dr. Dre was a big fan of Final Destination. <laughs> and yeah, he's in the video. He plays... Uh, Stan, the song is about an obsessed fan who's the rap verses are his letters that he writes to uh, Slim Shady. I know you probably hear this every day, but I'm your biggest fan. I even got the underground shit that you did with Scam. I got a room full of your posters and your pictures, man. I like the shit you did with Rockets too. That shit was fat. Anyways, I hope you get this, man. Hit me back. Just a chat. Truly yours, your biggest fan. This is Stan. It's pretty interesting. Like, he does look a lot like Eminem when he dies, bleaches his hair blonde. Mm-hmm. or the, And it, it's kind of like, he really sells, I think, that he's like this obsessed fan. And the song is a very compelling story on its own. And he's just kind of mouthing the words that Eminem is actually singing. But yeah, it's really interesting. That's another like really dark thing that he did that it's kind of his dark trilogy with Idle Hands and Final Destination. And he was very conscious about trying to do that to break out of like the image that he had had before. I think when he was younger, it's interesting again, because obviously I like had a thing for him in the beginning of his career. But looking back as an adult, he just kind of seems pretty bland. Like, there's not much there. And I think later in his career, he started being a little bit more interesting. But he was pretty bland at first, to be honest. But most of them. <laughs> yeah, and most of them were. And like I think Jonathan John- Taylor Thomas is really bland, I think. He and- was like a white poster board. <laughs> well, his personality was bland, but he looked interesting. I don't know. Well, obviously, I had a big thing for him more than anyone, but... Yes. <laughs> I, I'm like, I see Devin Sawa now, and I think of all the, th- the career choices he made, and I actually think they're a lot more interesting than his younger days. Oh, yeah, for sure. Who knows, like, who was really even making any of these guys' decisions when they were kids? I mean, Brad Renfro is the only one who seems like he was really, like, mm-hmm. autonomous at this age. Like, mm-hmm. they seem very managed. But I mean, we also have to, like, remember that, like, they were on all these magazines, and I'm not entirely sure how this works, but I mean, those are all just publicity photos that are, like, distributed out. Like, they don't sit down and, like, talk to Bot Magazine, I don't think. I mean, they might have, like, a big press conference where they do, like, a few of those questions, but it's like, they're not really, like, doing exclusive interviews. They're not doing journalism. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, it's like, that industry kind of exists even without them like i mm-hmm. you don't have to do anything to be on the cover of bop like i don't think you even have to approve it really i no. mean maybe it's like any tabloid yeah yeah so i mean that whole thing was going on without a lot of these guys like i mean 
like you said, like Brad Renfro didn't seem like interested in it. He was still on the cover all the time. So was Devin Sawa. So you can kind of imagine that this was like their perception of themselves, but it probably wasn't because like they knew that they were popular with girls, but like that's just not how they were seeing themselves. Like they were doing other things. So it's like the vision that we had of them as these kind of like pinup, like junior gods is so different than like what their experience was at this time when they were like normal teenagers more or less and you know a lot of them didn't get into a lot of trouble like Devin Sawa kind of got into some trouble like after Final Destination and like partying and you know stuff like that but nothing too severe I mean for the most part most of them like transitioned into adulthood well enough I guess Jonathan Brandis and Brad Renfro not so much but and like River Phoenix but yeah. I think they're the outliers like usually they turned out okay mm-hmm and that was another thing that Jonathan Taylor Thomas said was that he like his role model was Jodie Foster, who was also a child actress who like became a really successful adult um, actress and filmmaker. And it honestly felt like really like strangely calculated that he would like at the age of like 15 or 16, like choose Jodie Foster as his role model. But I mean, I guess he was always pretty driven, like. I've never heard of a scandal with Jonathan oh. Taylor Thomas besides well, that time that he started messaging this girl from New York <laughs> on the internet and cybering with her. You also always wonder with people who start their careers as kids, how much pressure their parents put on them. Mm-hmm. You know, like in the case of Jonathan Brandis being a shoe model at like the age of two, like how much of that did he really play a role in and how much of that was his parents being like, you're cute, get out there kid. <laughs> you know, like we're going to mm-hmm. sell this pretty face. Like And when you're raised at that age, that that's your selling feature. And then all of a sudden it's not sellable anymore. It's like, well, what do I have? Like a lot of these guys didn't have an extreme amount of talent. It was like they just had like the capability of acting well enough and good looks. And so when that goes away, it's like they're really kind of stranded without anything that they know. Like It's not a normal transition because they've already been having a career all their lives. So it's like they expect mostly to continue that career and then can't and it's kind of like they like they've been in school but they haven't really been prepared for life like a lot of other more mm-hmm. I mean I don't think most of us are really prepared that well for life either but at least we expect like a certain path and it's a totally different path for them that must be like really difficult and it does seem like Jonathan Taylor Thomas somehow like magically avoided mm-hmm. all of the traps that like teen idols fallen because he was already like well i'm just gonna go to college and do this and get a job and yeah and that's what he did and good for him but (laughs) how did like how how? (laughs) like he was the most popular yeah it's crazy but i think even looking at interviews with him that he was on conan or whatever he just even if it was a little calculated he just seems like a normal guy but, like, how are you a normal guy? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Because there's nothing about his life that was even remotely normal. It is especially surprising, I think, that he ended up having somewhat of a functioning life, apparently. That you wouldn't have, like, some kind of crazy ego, or at least, like, go with that for a little while. Um, and he's... Did he ever really have, like, a public romance or anything? Like, I mean, I can tell you what he told me on the internet, but... <laughs> no, I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, so I mean, I guess like this, these boys are popular because they don't have girlfriends. And that's always the question that's asked of them. But like now we have this culture where you know so much more about an actual teen 
celebrity's life, especially because they're going to be on social media and they're usually posting that stuff themselves. It depends, but it's like a very different relationship now. And like now, if it was Jonathan Taylor Thomas, like we would know everything about him mm-hmm. and he would be like everywhere. Like he would be have able his to own escape Instagram it. and Twitter and. Yeah, yeah, and he'd never escape the paparazzi if there was that much demand for him. Yeah, and if somebody saw him on the street, they would go online and be like, I know where he is, and he was with this person. And Yeah, so I don't know how he escaped. I don't know how he still escapes that. There's still a lot of demand for him in, like, 90s nostalgia is a huge thing. Hello, we built our podcast on it. <laughs> uh, and so it's like, a lot of people want to know where he is. Like, even if you... if. Like, a paparazzi went after him right now. People would watch, like, want to see those pictures, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's, like, it's weird that he just managed to just, like, escape. Mm -hmm. So our last teen heartthrob to talk about is Andrew Keegan Haying. His real last name is Haying. So Andrew Keegan was born January 29th, 1979 in Los Angeles. He's half Colombian, half Nebraskan. (laughs) He was in Camp Nowhere uh, in 1994, along with Jonathan Jackson. And I rewatched that movie for this (laughs) podcast and found both of them to be pretty, like, charismatic actors in it. Like, the movie is not bad. It stars Christopher Lloyd as a um, failed drama teacher who then is recruited to pretend to be a camp counselor for various types of camps because all of these kids don't want to go to fat camp or drama camp or computer camp or military camp. So they all, like, take that money and create their own camp that's just, like, 12-year-old hedonism, like, shooting Nerf guns at each other. Um, No child orgies, luckily. (laughs) This is not a Stephen King joint. Uh, Not that kind of hedonism. Yeah. So how you doing, Mud? I'm okay. The muscle head in gym class tried to hang me up by my underwear again. Wayne Fletcher? Don't worry, I've got him covered. Okay, let's do it. Zach, do we have to? Look, Mud, I've told you a thousand times. I've got a reputation. Oh, Zach, please stop it! Yeah, it's like a passable movie. I think it it, hold, it held up well enough as like something I'm like, yeah, this is a good movie for kids. It's, you know, it treats kids as intelligent characters that they come up with as idea themselves and, you know, like come up with schemes that are, there's a lot of movies about scheming kids, but these are like a little bit more clever. Like that's mm-hmm. actually kind of a clever thing to do, to like take your parents' money and create your own camp. Like I'm like... Good for you, kids. Like, I'm going to go back and do that now. <laughs> yeah. He had a, like, really, well, not even a cameo, because it's not because he was famous, but in Independence Day, he was, like, very briefly in it. He appeared on shows like Full House, Boy Meets World, Step by Step, and then he had longer stints on Seventh Heaven and Party of Five. And then he played a gay character in Broken Hearts Club in 2000, oh, yeah. which I think is a really interesting turn for someone who's, like, a teen heartthrob at that age to, like, take that risk, especially in the year 2000 when that was not a safe thing to do at no, all. No, there was only, like, a handful of gay movies, and that was one of them. Yeah. Like, this one had some other stars, like Dean Cain, who were also... I remember that. Okay, yeah. I couldn't... I totally forgot that it was that particular movie. But yeah, yeah, but, I mean, I unlike most gay movies, it like, it did have, like, some real, like straight stars in it and like stars who would appeal to a lot of people and I kind of have to admire him for taking that risk when he didn't have to by any means. He was also in 10 Things I Hate About You in 1999 as the big man on campus as was kind of his destiny but he wasn't really in any movies between 1994 and 1999 like he was on TV which just 
like reinforces the idea that like like this teen phenom thing is like has nothing to do with what movies they're in. It's a totally separate thing. And it's mm-hmm. like most of these guys, what they were in is not that memorable. Looking back at what they had done, I was like kind of confused and I was like, oh, is this it? Like I was kept looking for like, where's the iconic role? And it's like the iconic yeah. role was as the teen idol. Like That's so that funny. was their role. That's so funny to me because Andrew Keegan is literally the one of this whole list where I only knew him from like my friend's Tiger Beat magazines. He I is, was like, who is that pretty boy in the magazine? Yeah. So I remember seeing these covers like just at the supermarket. I didn't have these yeah. magazines, but you would see them. And so like every week you're bombarded with Andrew Keegan, Andrew Keegan, Andrew Keegan. It's like the same guys on every single cover and some, Mm -hmm. it's always JTT, Devin Sawa, and Andrew Keegan. Sometimes you get a Brad Renfro, sometimes you get a Jonathan Brandis or a Jonathan Jackson. But it's really like the same thing over and over again. And that's really why they're such big stars to us. Is Like for me, not even reading the magazines, but just seeing the cover and just being told, this is what girls like, this is what girls are freaking out about, made them like this kind of like aspirational kind of guys is like, I mean, it wasn't even aspirational because it was more like, I'm not Andrew Keegan, so what chance do I have? It was more desperational than aspirational. Yeah. (laughs) This is who I'm not. Yeah, I mean, that kind of brings me just to, like, my real point on these is that, like, I was aware of something, like, there was a weird, like, jealousy of them, but also, like, you wanted to be friends with them, and, like, they were... It's the same thing with girls. Yeah. When you're like, oh, I love Christina Ricci, but, like, why can't I be Christina Ricci? Yeah. It's the same thing. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, so for me, it was, like, not attraction, but their sex appeal as, like, teenagers was a factor in, like, how I viewed them because I knew that they were very attractive and, like, wanted to be more like them or wanted, you know, to reap the benefits of that myself. So it's a very confusing thing to look back at now. Yeah, no, and I I feel like I had a combination of both of your feelings in the sense that it was, like, both some of the earliest men to whom I was attracted and also, like men against whom I compared myself and found myself very much wanting. (laughs) (laughs) And, and it's not like I needed help in doing that at that time, but it was a very like conflicting thing to be bombarded with as someone of that age. Andrew Keegan, where is he now? He has his own religion. (laughs) He bought the church of another LA based cult out in Venice and created his own cult uh, it's based around basically any given random new agey belief that you've heard of, including crystal healing, uh, cleanses, chanting. What does he look like now? Sound sound baths. Um, he looks very similar now. He's he's Still held good up looking as as far as his image. He's held up pretty well. I'm picturing like I'm not looking at the picture yet. I'm picturing like leathery tan skin and like a lot of facial hair and long hair still. Oh, I'm right. <laughs> it's less leathery than you'd expect, though. His hair is not as long as I kind of thought it would be. There's not a lot of facial. Yeah, hair. I've got it's it. Like I nailed it, stubble. guys. Pretty yeah, much nailed, nailed it. it. Um, his cult got shut down in 2015 for illegally selling kombucha without a permit. <laughs> this is the lamest cult I've ever it heard. Is of. Super lame. You are correct. Uh, in 2016, it briefly went bankrupt and got financing from some mysterious benefactor who we never talked about. Um, Jonathan Taylor Thomas. <laughs> yeah, I feel like JTT is an angel investor who swooped in. Yeah, it's called Full Circle. I watched a video about it. <laughs> I think the word cult is a lot. It's a religion. It's very new agey. It's kind of ridiculous. It's it's spiritual. Yeah, it doesn't Sir, seem to have anything to do. But, I mean, it doesn't seem like 
harmful in any way. It's like it's a bunch. It's just like trendy, you know. Mm-hmm. A lot of like the people who go there are like his old fans. Like it, well, it's not all, harmless. Not all cults are are horribly dangerous, toxic places, but it is a cult. Yeah, well, let's leave that right. for the authorities to decide. <laughs> <laughs> and they have. <laughs> It seems fine to me. <laughs> and he seems like g- very genuinely passionate about his uh, organization. So, uh, what cult did Ryder Strong start? Oh, uh, Devil Worshippers, of course, because he's the bad boy. We also wanted to touch on Boy Meets World really quickly, just because it was a TV show that basically starred three potential kind of dreamboats. I think the main character... Ben Savage. Ben Savage, yeah. Fred Savage's brother was not as much of that. He was more like coasting on his brother's fame, kind of, and is like, look, another Savage. We can do another hit with him. Yeah. But Ryder Strong and, to a lesser extent, Will Friedle... Oh, um, yeah. ...were also... I thought you were going to say Topanga. Well, she, yeah, she was like the girl version. Of yeah. It. Like, she was pretty hot to 12 year old boys. Yeah. I mean, she started as a weird character on that, and then they, like, decided to make her hot. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Daniel, Daniel Fischel. Fischel. Oh, yeah. that's right. But yeah, Ryder Strong was another one of those teen heartthrobs that had his kind of image was like the, the cool kid in quotes. Yeah. Like the kind of character who would like roll up on a skateboard and give you like double pistol <laughs> fingers and then skateboard away. He was Roy from the Simpsons. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he was like the bad boy, but the good version of the bad boy. Unlike Poochie. the really bad boy, Brad Renfro. He's like yeah. Bart. I know I just said Roy, but <laughs> like... no, he's more, he's like Poochie. <laughs> more like Poochie. <laughs> totally <laughs> different paradigm. <laughs> I can't concur with any of this. <laughs> <laughs> no Simpsons in the Heart Top episode. She's my best friend's girl. She's my best friend's girl. How the heck would that marry me? I live in a trailer park and I have no education, but my hair does this. <laughs> Shut up, man. I'm going for it. What did you like about Ryder Strong? I, I just liked the fact that he had that quote-unquote cool attitude. Also, I feel like his butt cut was a big part of it. And his since what? His butt cut. Oh, the hair thing. Oh, we yes, didn't talk hair. about the hair we that didn't every talk about, teen idol had. We didn't talk about this at all, but I feel like it's the most important, at least to me personally. I briefly had, in the interest of full disclosure... <laughs> A butt cut in middle school. That is when the part is right down the middle and it's two fluffies, two fluffy curtains. Um. Two fluffy buns on either side. Why is it called a butt cut? I don't... Because your hair is then shaped like a butt. I don't see it. Because it's like two poofs on on each side of your forehead. Uh, I don't see it. Well, every single person had it. I think Leo had it in Titanic. No, I mean, I, I, see, like, <laughs> I see the hair. I just, Got never it. mind. Got it. But it was, that was such a fixture of the teen heartthrobs, especially of the 90s. And I mean, Hanson even picked up that baton eventually. Um, but yeah, that was a big part of Ryder Strong's appeal was just purely aesthetic to me. He was like a pretty boy that had that devilish air about him. Well, even more than anyone else on this list, he did nothing else besides Boy Meets World. That too. That too. It was a one and done kind of career. I guess my final thoughts for this episode are, as an adult, I think that you could give Brad Renfro movies like a shot if you had been, like, and be kind of wowed by his talent. I don't think as an adult you'd want to go back to like Ladybugs or Tom and Huck. Nope. Um, or Man of the House or, you know, oh, man. Casper. These are fine movies, I think, for children still, uh, except for Ladybugs. <laughs> um, Do not show Ladybugs to children. Yeah, but I think as an adult, you would probably appreciate Brad Renfro the most out of all of these heartthrobs. Yeah, I would totally about. agree with that. 
Yeah, I ended up appreciating him the most. I appreciate Devin Sawa a lot, too, because he just seems like kind of a cool guy who, like, took his stardom in stride and now will, like, joke about it. And even, like, Leonardo DiCaprio doesn't like to, like, bask in, like, sev- like 17-year-old Leoness. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he wants to be taken seriously as an actor. And I like that Devin Sawa can at least just be like, yeah, that's ridiculous, whatever, that's my childhood. Like, deal with it. I enjoyed the experience of making myself say you a lot watching Ladybugs. <laughs> like for some reason that I feel like that was something I had to do. Like maybe maybe enjoyed is the wrong word, but I feel like it there was a demon back there. You feel there. exercised. I had to confront I had to get that xenomorph out of me. That's really interesting too, because I had the same feeling watching that and I also had that same feeling like rewatching Never Ending Story and Never Ending Story 2. And just as I had the same feeling, although it was accompanied with many more gasps of horror, watching rewatching Ace Ventura Pet Detective, I feel like there are aspects of these things where, you know, whether the creators are intending it or aware of it or not, they create kind of emotional reactions in people and their work creates emotional reactions in people that you're not necessarily equipped to deal with at a given age. Yeah, I really think that there was something about Ladybugs that was kind of haunting me in a way. (laughs) And I didn't know it. And, like, that's... It was that song, the dream song, and that image of her running and just, like, a bunch of images of him in the wig. And I was just like, whoa, like, this scarred me for life. Like, adults need to, like, think more about what they put in kids' (laughs) movies. Like, this movie was not okay. And that's all of your arms and your charms that we have time for on today's episode of When We Were Young. And on the next episode of When We Were Young... We are doing a little-known pop culture figure called Madonna. This might be our most ambitious episode yet. (laughs) So we're trying to stay focused on the 90s and do uh, her Dick Tracy album, I'm Breathless, along with Erotica, Bedtime Stories, and Ray of Light in time for its 20th anniversary in late February. So tune in for that and re-listen to those albums if you you care to. I'm going track by track through her discography. So (laughs) So am I. (laughs) So join us for that. I already have so many, so many opinions. Yes. The When We Were Young podcast was a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this audiophonic exposition, you can follow us on iTunes and leave us a review of five stars or more. And you can follow us on all those other social media places as well. I have been Seth Pearson. I'm Chris. And yes, I am single with no girlfriend. And I'm Becky Taylor Thomas. (laughs) (laughs) Dream